Airline Pilot Guy, episode 342. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters. Today's show was recorded on the 30th of September, 2018. In today's episode, a jet lands short of the runway in Micronesia, a disaster averted by Great S.A. at Dulles, NOTAMs are a bunch of garbage, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, Captain Al and the Spotty M, Part 2. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on, Flight 342 is ready for pushback. Woo, I came in right under the wire there, didn't I? Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy show. It's a show about aviation um, news and answering all of your feedback. And here to help me do that, from our lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Nice to see you on this fine Sunday afternoon and looking forward to a great show with you guys. Nice to see you as well. And also joining us from his studio in England, a professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Captain Jeff, and go Europe! Go Europe in the Ryder Cup! Woohoo! Does anyone watch that? No. Is that the um, golf? <laughs> that thing where they um, like you you rent uh, like trucks and stuff, Ryder? Yes. Uh, is yes. that it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and uh, so happy to be here on this fine Sunday and episode three forty-two, and. International Podcast Day is September 30th, and you can help spread the word. You may be asking, what can I do to get involved? It's pretty simple. Yeah, duh. Record a podcast. Pretty so we're simple. doing our part? Yeah. International okay. Podcast Day. Happy International Podcast Day, everyone. Yay. Wait, were we supposed to have something celebratory to drink? <sighs> uh, or cake? Yeah, that would have been... Uh. I is, is there a is there a podcast IPA yet? Um, no, but let's just pretend there's something special in my mug. And uh, here's to you all, my co-hosts, and all of you out there listening to this show. Happy International Podcast Day! Cheers! Woohoo! Cheers! Okay, well, we got that out of the way. We're doing hey, our. Where's part. my mug? Where is your mug? I don't know. Yeah, where's my mug? <laughs> oh, it's uh, it's right over there. <laughs> I, I can see it. <laughs> I yeah, forgot to give mug. it to you. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, let's see here. Why um, don't we catch up quickly here? Uh, we did that podcast, uh, not, not podcast, uh, feedback extra just a few days ago on uh, Wednesday. 
and uh, just finally got it published yesterday and uh, was going to, uh, you know, it was a good thing. We, we got a lot of uh, feedback knocked out. We didn't cover all of it, of course, but uh, we made a big dent in it, which is good. And uh, we got a lot of stuff, a lot more feedback and a lot of news on this week's episode. But before we talk about that, let's talk about what we have done in the meantime. So, Captain Nick, you were saying that um, you had some guests from out of town, I believe some family of yours. Uh, Yeah, two Canadians came across from Canada and uh, and invaded uh, the United Kingdom and uh, uh, spread um, sorries and... um, uh, sticky tree juice all over my house. Okay. Um, so that was very nice. Uh, they're very good at apologizing. I must admit they're, they're <laughs> fine apologists. Those, those it's a requirement can- to maintain your Canadian citizenship. Yeah. <laughs> Except that my brother is really uh, British. Uh, and uh, I tell you what, I'm going to get it off my chest now. Um, he is now a naturalized Canadian. Uh, but he somehow draws a uh, British pension, index-linked, and he uses it to uh, lease a beautiful Mercedes-Benz. So all us British folk, we've got to tell all those people who are living in Canada, we're not having them draw their damn pension when they're not even British anymore and they're living in another country just so they can all have Mercedes-Benz. It's not fair. Not fair, yeah. not fair. It's not. Sounds like a pretty good deal for him, though. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> like double I mean, dipping to me. Heaven say, yep. Ridiculous. I don't know. My <laughs> damn taxes. Is my my taxes. Do you do you feel Did better? Ladies, do you feel better? Do you have it off your chest now? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot better. Okay, so he's been staying. Yeah, uh, I finally managed to trick him uh, to get onto a boat, which luckily set sail before he got off again. So apparently he's on some cruise now to beautiful places because he's so well off with all the British pension that he's getting uh, that he can afford to go on cruises. Uh, Because we're a bit of an aviation family and he's married to a lovely lady who is um, works for a legacy Canadian long and short haul airline uh, flying all around the world. She still works uh, as cabin crew for them. And uh, she's lovely, so we'll forgive her because she doesn't draw the pension. Only my ugly brother draws the pension. (laughs) Damn him. You guys are close, I can tell. Very. We're actually uh, unbelievably alike, even though he's very old. He's he's way older than me. Very, very old. You're just very old. He's very, very old. Um (laughs) So, you know, you were talking about on the last uh, show, Nick, the uh, meetup with Vernon and his wife. Yep. And yeah. Vernon sent us some feedback. Shall I read it? Cool, yeah. Okay, he says, Our thanks to Captain Nick for tracking us down and taking us to the Blue Bell. Ruth says that that was the best fish and chips we had during our trip. The company wasn't bad either. I think, Nick, because of you, she now feels that she's part of the APG community. If you ever have reason to be in Denver, let's have another meetup. Remember, old controllers never die. They just lose their radar contact. Ah, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Vernon. Thanks, Vernon, for sending this in. A very, very nice photo of the three of them in front of Blue Bell. Looks like a nice little, what is it, a pub? Yeah, right on uh, the coast, uh, right in a harbor. Very nice, good seafood, lovely uh, beer. In fact, the beer we were drinking is going to be probably uh, featuring in the next plane tale. 
Really, it's a little uh, yeah, interesting. And I it was the I got a pint of this beer, and uh, they handed out a little flyer with an explanation of uh, the history of the name of the beer. And I and I went, wow, that's going to make a brilliant play tale. So it's going to be the next one. All right, look forward to that. Mm. Steph, um, what have you been up to lately? Work, 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 work. <laughs> and some running, oh maybe. Uh, not as much as I'd like to be doing, but I'm going to make up for that this upcoming week. I'm pretty sure. Uh, now this week was terrible. Um, at work, just a combination of a million different things. Nothing, no one thing in particular. I think it was the full moon, and I think everyone's been taking crazy pills. <laughs> Uh, so I'm very glad not to be at work right now, and I'm sorry I missed uh, most of the feedback extra on whatever day that was, Wednesday. Yeah. I got, yeah, yeah that's stuck Stuff happens, right? Yeah, it does. And it's, you know, I feel like the busy our busy time of year keeps getting earlier and earlier each year. So it used to be just like November and December, and now it's like October, November, December, and I feel like it's creeping into September as well. Mm. So it's going to be an interesting couple of months coming up, but busy's good. Um, I suppose you want to be busy at work. The opposite is is not very good. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, back into uh, doing more running. Um, have the Chicago Marathon coming up next Sunday, the seventh. So I'll be heading over to Chicago here soon, and um, did a little bit of flying this week. Got about a half hour in of doing some pattern work. So squeeze that in where I can. Excellent. So uh, were were you flying the Cirrus again? No, the one seventy two. Okay, I um was up at uh, Knoxville, uh, McGee-Tyson um, airport. Ah, yes. mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't realize that uh, apparently uh, that's a pretty big place for Cirrus. It is. I think that's where they do their um, um, delivery, basically. Yeah, there so are a lot of them out there, including a oh, yes. bunch of those uh, Cirrus jets, the whatever Cirrus they call vision them. Jet, vision jets. Vision mm-hmm. jet, yeah, with the big giant V tail. Mm-hmm. Saw one uh, taxi out and ta- take off in front of us uh, the other mm-hmm. day. Yeah, so... I tell They're you, pretty that, cool. I've had a chance to poke around in them a few times. Yeah, that's right. You went to a special invitation-only kind of event, right? Yeah, it was basically a, a sales pitch for something I definitely can't afford. Uh, you didn't put a down payment on one of those babies? I, huh? did, I did not. Not yet. So, no. but she got a free pen. I did get a free pen out of it, a cool pen. How much are those, anyway? Oh, God, what, the pen? That. No, <laughs> not the pen. The, the airplane, the jets. I know that the Cirrus, what, SR-22 is like half, half a, million, a million, right? Yeah. So the jet's got to be probably over a million. Over a million I want to yeah. say probably closer to two, depending on some of the features you can wow. put on it. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Of course, they don't actually tell you that at the. Uh... It's not a selling point, is it? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> they just tell you all of the fun things it can do and all the you know different features that you can have. On that it. thing has like one of those. Uh, what do they call it? Caps. Um, I forgot uh-huh. what that stands for. Uh, is it the same Cirrus kind of airframe a parachute system? I say, say it again. I'm sorry, I was interrupting. Cirrus airframe parachute system. I'm probably messing that up. That actually. sounds pretty good something, to me. Something like that. Caps. Mm-hmm. And they do it have does. that on the uh, jet as well. They do. Okay. So I'm imagining that if the jet starts sputtering and uh, not working, that uh, at least you have some way to save yourself. Yep. If it comes down That's to the, it. Uh, that is the idea. Okay. Very cool. Uh, anything else, Steph? going on in your life well, that sums up my week okay a lot of traveling next week and uh, the big marathon and all that kind of stuff that's cool yeah all right can't wait for you to tell us all about it when you get back i will all right uh let's see we have a clarification 
um, a, a mistake. Can you believe it? We made a mistake. Um, <laughs> actually, not. Like it's no, actually not. <laughs> it's actually not really a mistake. It's more of a clear. Yeah, it's just a clarification. I'd asked. Um, somebody had uh, sent us some feedback regarding uh, monitored approaches. We're not going to talk about that again. Don't worry. Um, but uh, there is a, a great YouTube channel out there that I've, I've watched um, his, uh, his uh, videos uh, quite a bit in uh, the past uh, year or two. And his name or he, the name of his channel is Mentor Pilot. Remember, we had this discussion about mentor or mentor. And uh, Deanna uh, via Facebook. Thank you, Liz. Uh, sent uh, a message that says Mentor Pilot said he used that name because Mentor Pilot was already taken. That's it. No complicated explanation. He makes great content too, according to Deanna, and I agree. So you should check I out. I guess his. that's a bit like me using old dot plot because old pilot had already been taken. <laughs> now, really? That's why? Really? Or is it yeah. just because you misspelled it? <laughs> Well, there's a bit of both there. I was well, a little surprised when I typed it in and went, good Lord, no one's taken old pilot. I'll have that. <laughs> and after I registered myself and reread it, I went, oh, no. <laughs> what have I done? No, no wonder nobody else has it. Exactly. Yes. No one wants that. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. I was just on a trip. Uh, mentioned I was in uh, Knoxville and uh, a couple other places I can't remember now. What else did I do? Shoot. Did I have any meetups or anything? This is embarrassing. Um, I don't know. I did not follow your week because I was. Why didn't you follow my week? week? Well, it's only been a couple of days. I know. You'd think that I would remember this. You had Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Okay. I was in Knoxville. Then we did the the feedback extra. That's what I was doing that day. Then the next day we were in Indianapolis and no meetup there. And then the next day I was in Huntsville. No, no, I I was pretty worthless actually. Um, so yeah, I just had that four day trip and, uh, you know, weather was kind of cruddy the first couple of days of it, you know, a lot of rain and, and, uh, thunderstorms, that kind of thing. But, uh, the last couple of days uh, were very nice and I got home early yesterday morning, just one leg back from Huntsville. Uh, it was an early flight, but it was worth it. I got home, I don't know, into the house here about nine, between nine and 10 o'clock. So that was nice. And uh, that's it. I don't think there's anything else to say. Well, I've just got a couple of things, uh, if oh. I may. First thing is a plea. Uh, okay, uh, helicopters do occasionally fly under bridges. Okay, I've got that now. Thank you very much indeed for the thousands upon thousands of people who have now sent me videos of damned hairy helicopters, hairy copters, Hairily flying under hairy bridges. So that's it. All right. That's enough. I've got it now. Okay, fine. You can do it. That's, I'll leave it alone. Subject closed. Um, and the second one is uh, I'm off uh, to see uh, Adam uh, on Tuesday because I'm going down to the Swanee Air Traffic Control Center. <clears throat> Excuse me. To attend one of their training days for air traffic controllers. Clean my glasses <laughs> off. Sorry. Sorry. Wow, you managed Sorry, to. Jeff. That was a bit of a projectile, a bit of spitting. Sorry. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm going to meet uh, Adam down there. I don't know what he's doing down there. I would have thought he would have had enough training uh, in his life, but apparently he's he's down at Swanick. So uh, we're going to have breakfast together. I don't suppose he's doing a stack day, but uh, he's probably just down there for fun. Looking forward to that. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear. The report from that. Yeah, it'd be good. Okay. Well, let's move on to 
the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, that's the Jeff Smith, the Jeff Smith singing the Java Jive. And the reason why he's singing that is because we're going to talk about the Coffee Fund, which is your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. A couple different ways to do that. The first is the classic method. And uh, let's see, Richard Adams, Brian Juarez, and Stephen Abreu, or Abreu, Use that method to send us some fine contributions. Thank you very much, guys. And you can also be a patron of the show via Patreon. And we have a couple new producers. Uh, Brett Schuster and Mike Bambrick are some new producers for us. And we have a new executive producer, Cameron Berigree. He even wrote that out phonetically for me. I need all the help I can get. Again, thank you, uh, Cameron and Brett and Mike, Richard, Brian, and Stephen for your contributions. If you want to learn more about the Coffee Fund, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Johnny, how much more coffee? Why not? Stand by for news. There was a close call averted because somebody was paying attention at Dulles Airport on the 17th of September, 2018. We have some audio from it. Let's take a listen. United 326 is ready. All right, now 326, and we one on the center line up and wait, sir. The current wind is 170 at 8, gust 2-0. I'm going to have multiple left crowd crossing around way ahead of you. One nine center line up and wait, United 326. Okay. Tower controller says line up and wait. And there are going to be several airplanes crossing the runway ahead. One C four six fifty one turn right heading three two zero. Three two zero and turn one C four six three twenty six turn right heading two three zero runway one nine center clip takeoff heading two thirty. Heading two three zero one nine center clip takeoff United three twenty six. Uh, for what is ski 4651, just confirm, was that 23 or 320 on the heading? Northwest bound, 320, what is 4651, contact the summit, have a good one. All right, thanks again. United 589, where you parking? Charlie 9. United 589, Whiskey 2, hold short 1 out of center, stay with me, please. Whiskey 2, short 1 9 center with you, Unit 589. United 719, just go ahead and take this to the runway, please. Hold short of 19 center, United 719. Thank you, sir. Skywest 3721 at Whiskey 4, cross only one out of center, and hold short of taxiway Yankee, please. Cross one out of center, hold short of the Yankee, and I'll just be going to 3721. America 2784 at Whiskey 2, cross one out of center, and uh, hold short of uh, taxiway Whiskey 
Tactically a whiskey, I'm sorry, tactically a Yankee stick there and hold short, tactically Yankee. So cross the runway, make the left to join Yankee stick behind the small left right there. Cleared across uh, 190 Center, whiskey 2, join Yankee 6 and hold short, Yankee America 2784. Skyway 3721, ground's going to be 121.62, pass hold short line, please. And ground or tower United 326 is rejected for aircraft on the runway. United Okay, there's a little bit more. Let me stop the playback there. A little bit more to the um, the video, uh, the the tape, um, or whatever we want to call it, recording. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes, so you can listen to the entire thing. But uh, basically, you get the gist of it. Uh, he tells United 326 to uh, go into position, which he's a uh, 737-900. And then he says, at the same time, you're going to wait because there are going to be a couple airplanes crossing downfield. And then he gives some instructions to the previously uh, cleared for takeoff airplane that was now airborne to contact departure. A little bit of confusion. That airplane comes back and asks about the frequency. Apparently, they didn't get it right the first time. And then, I don't know, you know, it must have been something uh, that happened there that made the controller forget that he told United 326 he was going to be crossing airplanes and he just automatically clears him for takeoff. And then after he clears him for takeoff, he clears two separate flights to cross a SkyWest flight and an American flight. The SkyWest flight actually crossed the runway. I think the American flight um, not sure. Uh, looking at the video here, they try to do a recreation. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but it sounds like the American flight maybe had some question about whether or not they should cross the runway because I, I bet they probably had a discussion in the cockpit saying, well, didn't they just clear that guy for takeoff? And now he just cleared us to cross the runway. And so there was probably some hesitation there and, and they stopped uh, according to this, uh, this recording. And then, of course, the United flight, I'm not sure, it doesn't really give details of how fast the uh, United was going at the time that they aborted their takeoff or rejected their takeoff. Uh, but, um, you know, they basically informed the tower controller, who apparently didn't notice that they had aborted their takeoff, that uh, they were stopping because of the crossing traffic. And then, of course, you heard him ask, did I clear you for takeoff? Did you receive takeoff clearance? And they said, yep, yep, you did. And he did. Yes. Um, so that's, what, you know, we talked about it was that uh, he, he actually kept his cool after realizing he had probably made a mistake here. And uh, I thought he sort of picked up the pieces again, because I think a lot of guys would probably just lose the plot at that point, having realized they'd made such a monumental error. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that just shows you, you know, we're all human and subject to do these things from time to time. Um, no matter how careful you are and how aware you think you are of the situation, there's things that become routine in our jobs. And it's very easy to go through something that's routine without even giving it a second thought. And if for some reason it's just a little bit out of place, it can have big consequences. But um, good reminder, too, for everyone listening in on that frequency to be paying attention and creating that mental map of situational awareness um, so that if you're one of those planes waiting to cross the runway and you say, wait a minute, uh, he just cleared that guy for takeoff. Maybe we should take a look down the runway and make sure that it's OK and maybe question it if we are unsure. That is so true. Yeah, and of course, there's all those visual cues as well, because I gather in America, uh, the, the use of the landing light uh, indicates that you've got a clearance for takeoff. And, um, you know, after 24 years of flying in my company, we've just adopted that procedure. So now we do the same. We don't put our landing lights on uh, to, until we've received a takeoff clearance which sounds a bit odd to someone who's a non-aviator, but they're the same lights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the landing what? and the takeoff. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. The landing and the takeoff lights are the same? Yeah, what's that? Yeah. Oh. So uh, there you go. So uh, we're we'll... wrong all these years. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't find the <laughs> I could never find yeah. the darn takeoff light <sighs> switch. <laughs> of course, uh, we, we all hark back to the tragedy at Tenerife, was it? Where yeah. uh, sure. two, a 747 and... Uh, Two seven forty seven. I mean, this is the biggest loss of life in any accident yet, and uh, of course, the potential uh, for having a double uh, a accident really, two aircraft uh, colliding is is just horrendous. So, it is incredibly important, and it's one of the reasons that we have so many uh, additional warnings on our uh, plates nowadays uh, hot spots where you know these potential conflicts can occur and also why a lot of airfields are fitting automated lighting systems to prevent exactly this sort of a problem so that when one aircraft uh, is on the runway for takeoff a red a blast of red lights appear for any aircraft that's trying to cross and vice versa, just to give that double warning. And it's independent of the air traffic controller, so he doesn't need to to uh, do anything to make those lights come on. They come on automatically, but if they do come on in your face, then you query it because uh, you are not going to uh, cross with all those red lights on. Very true. And, uh, but the key thing, and, and there are a lot of things going on, especially after you've landed and you're doing your after landing checklist and there are some call outs being made and a lot of stuff going on in the cockpit, but you have to pay attention. Even if they're not talking directly to you, you have to pay attention to what the controller is saying to everyone out there. And as, um, Steph mentioned, you know, build that mental map of, uh, or, you know, that, uh, situational awareness inside your head and, uh, know what everybody's doing and what they're cleared to do. So, Apparently, Oops, uh, upside your head. Yeah, upside your head. Upside your head. Anyway, <laughs> that's enough of that one. I think. Uh, let's see. The second thing we have in our news folder: it's only a nine thousand nine hundred foot runway if you use all of it. <laughs> yes, it is. and You're pointing uh, in the right direction. Yeah. So uh, this is an incident that occurred in uh, at uh, Sharjah. Is that Sharjah? Yeah, Sharjah. Right. Uh, Arabia A three twenty on the 18th of September, and I uh, believe this is from the Aviation Herald, uh, an Air Arabia Airbus A320-200 
was uh, going from Sharjah, uh, United Arab Emirates, to Salala, Oman. The aircraft entered the runway for an intersection departure from runway uh, or taxiway B-14, and they turned into the direction of runway 12, which is the opposite direction to which they were supposed to turn. Uh, takeoff distance available from intersection B-14 on runway 12 was 1,020 meters or 3,350 feet instead of 3,010 meters, 9,900 feet in the correct direction, uh, runway 30. Uh, included the paved runway and safety area at the end. Uh, the paved surface going the wrong direction was a total of 3,760 feet. The crew commenced takeoff from intersection B-14, and they managed to become airborne in time to avoid any obstacles, climbed out to safety, and continued to Salala for a landing without further incident. On September 19th, uh, Air Arabia instructed their pilots that all intersection departures were banned with immediate effect after one of their flights took off from an intersection in the wrong direction. The airline further reiterates that ATC and Sharjah might clear flights to taxi to the runway full length via taxiway B rather than taxiway A. Great attention to ATC instructions is needed. And they have a little graphic here to show us exactly what this uh, incident aircraft did, turning the wrong way and the uh, air uh, runway setup, and uh, wow, talking about that could have gone very, very badly as well, going the wrong direction. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that could have been just a nightmare. I'm not still not sure how they had the performance to get off on what effectively was one-third of the runway when they planned on using two-thirds of the runway. They, um, they must have been very light. Yeah. yeah, and perhaps not using balance field. I don't know. They, I don't know what it was, but they, they they got it off so well. But, I mean, I'm just trying to work out, apart from all the signposts, um, the fact that it was very short and the fact that when they looked down at their nav display, the little green line showing them their departure would have been coming out the bottom of the runway instead of the top. So yeah. I've got... How did they miss that? Unless maybe know. they somehow, in their heads, they were thinking one two the whole time, and maybe they had set up set it up for a one two departure. That may have, yep. you know, That's it doesn't really give yep. us that information here. Uh, no, I, it doesn't. But that is possible. a possibility, of course. Uh, and you, you know, with basics, you know, right? Fundamentals. You when you go onto a runway, uh, you look for the numbers of the runway if you're tax if you're taking off from the takeoff position and in this case they would not see that because they're that's an intersection departure that's a risk of an intersection departure the second thing though you always do as well as looking for the numbers painted on the runway you look at your compass and you see if the heading on your compass matches with the runway what is this crude and ancient device you talk <laughs> so, of? I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> yeah, so we actually still have a company. No, you, we have them, by the way, people that are not pilots. Uh, even in these fancy displays that Nick has and Steph has when she flies the Cirrus, there is still a compass uh, superimposed. Uh, your heading is superimposed upon the display. So, and I'm sure that Nick will tell us that that is something that they always check as well, right? Of course. Yes. He's trying to be fun. He's trying to make fun of my airplane again. <laughs> and we've only been going for, what, 20 minutes? And you're already making fun of my dinosaur airplane. Well, I, I could have made several comments, but yeah, you're I'm lucky it's only been one. Yeah, I'm just where he was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> 
<sighs> All right. Anything else to say about this? Nope. All right. Um, sadly, not too far from uh, you, Steph, Mm-mm. in Greenville, yeah. South Carolina. No. Uh, just a few days ago, um, a an airplane was was it were they landing? I think they were landing. They were landing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, at Greenville downtown, uh, Steph and I have both flown general aviation into that airport. Yep. Um, I, uh, that's where I went with, well, I actually, I've been there a couple of times in GA, uh, with, uh, Stephen Ivy and his Mooney and, uh, dispatcher Mike in the Musketeer. We also stopped at the uh, Greenville downtown airport and then Steph and I ate, uh, an expensive hamburger there, uh, once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, a pilot and co-pilot were killed Thursday afternoon when a small jet broke in half after it went off a runway through a fence and into a road at the Greenville downtown airport. And I think kind of a down an embankment as well. Yeah. There's an embankment at the end of the runway there before it gets to the road. Yeah. That's so. probably what did them in just that yeah. steep angle and then hitting the flattened area at the yeah. end of the embankment. Uh, let's see the, it occurred about one forty PM. The plane went off the runway. We just talked about that. Um, two passengers were on board. Um, the passengers and, uh, well, there are two pilots and two passengers. I guess both pilots ended up dying, one immediately and then one later at the hospital. I believe both passengers, though, are still alive. As far as I know, yeah. 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 Um, they uh, show some pictures here in this uh, news article from WYFF4, uh, probably the local affiliate. It's the local, there. yeah, it's the local NBC uh, affiliate. And interesting, they said that when they got to the scene, that the um, uh, rescue workers had to get the one of the pilots uh, who was unconscious uh, lying on top of the throttles, and uh, I guess uh, the uh, the jet engine was still running, and they had to get this guy off the throttles to uh, to try to shut down the the uh, running engine. I don't know if it was more than one engine or not, and uh, I think it. It, the end. They couldn't get the engine shut down for some reason, right? Did I read that somewhere? It was a Falcon Fifty. Oh, I don't. Um, I, don't I, that. I think it ran for quite some time, but and then I guess there was a lot of fuel going into the uh, the stream nearby, and it was a it was a mess. And um, it's not a long. Yeah, they runway. said that at three p.m. they were still trying to shut it down. That's what yeah. I thought. But I don't yeah. know what uh, time it had crashed. Um, yeah, well, one forty-five, I believe, something like that. So more than an hour mm-hmm. later, the yeah. the uh, engine was still running. So, uh, which I'm sure hampered their efforts to uh, rescue the uh, the passengers as well. Um, so, tell us, um, Steph, the runway is uh, how long? Uh, the runway is just over five thousand feet long, if I remember correctly, like fifty-five hundred feet okay. or so. So it's not terribly long, um, but. Jets, but small, yeah. Operate I mean, in and out all the time, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it should be well within the uh, performance parameters of this uh, jet to land on that runway. So we really don't have any information yet as as to what you know what led to this accident. Um, you know, if, if something intended to or designed to slow the airplane down wasn't working, or uh, you know, whatever. I'm not yeah, sure. I mean, from other other reports, it sounds like everything appeared normal until they just really didn't stop at the end of the runway. Wow. So. That's sad. Yeah. Cool. I'm sure there'll be more information. Um, it's fairly local for me. So if I see that, I'll try and grab it so we can have some updates. Okay. Hopefully. Thank you. We'd appreciate that. 
Mm-hmm. And Pips just arrived in the chat room, so I don't know if he's heard anything about this. Yeah, perhaps he has. Our our local, not local, but our resident, um, one of our resident BizJet pilots. Perhaps uh, he can fill us in with uh, some of the, some of that information if uh, if he has any. Again, it was a Falcon 50 Trijet, um, and that's all we know. Went off the runway. Uh, both pilots are dead and passengers injured, two passengers. Um, in the meantime, we'll move on to item D, uh, Valeris A320 near Los Mochis on the 26th of September, encountered some turbulence at flight level 340, and... Uh, I think 20, well, there was a couple different um, news sources that uh, had different numbers here, but I trust Simon at the Aviation Herald, and here he says that uh, turbulence injured 29 people. Um, They said they encountered moderate turbulence, and in another place it said something about severe turbulence. And I guess the, uh, I'm guessing it doesn't say here that uh, the, uh, cabin crew was up probably serving beverages or meal service or whatever they do on that flight. And, uh, I have a feeling that, um, that, well, I don't know the, the seatbelt light may have been off. Uh, it may not have been off, but you know, as we always say, if you're not out of your seat to go use the restroom or whatever, you should be in the seat with the seatbelt fastened in case something like this happens. And uh, apparently uh, a bunch of people got injured pretty severe, severely, and uh, in the Aviation Herald article there, they have a, uh, uh, what is this, a satellite, infrared satellite image uh, about mm-hmm. 40 minutes prior to the accident occurrence. And uh, it's really hard to see. I mean, it, there's like a circle there. It says approximate turbulence position. There are some high clouds there, but uh, this is not a radar image. It's a satellite image, and it's really hard to say. Now, that almost looks like, if you look a little bit lower in the um, in the photo, it almost looks like a some kind of a tropical storm or hurricane or something out there. I mean, it looks. Isn't there? Um, what day did this happen? It was the twenty sixth. Was there a uh, hurricane there uh, off the Mexican coast? Rosa, I think. Could be. Is like a category one that's currently out there, ah. pretty close to that area. I'll bet that had something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I've just asked opposing bases the question uh, of why I would have been rerouted through the edge of the tropical revolving storm that was Florence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to wait to find out why, because uh, we'd planned to go well clear of it, uh, and we didn't. We couldn't fly that route, as it turned out. But these guys are about, you know, as far away from that storm as uh, as we went. You know, interestingly, uh, in my anecdotal experience, um, it seems that like this case where they were quite a ways away from the from the eye of the storm or the center of the low pressure, that uh, sometimes you can experience worse turbulence way far away than you do if you go like very close to or even over the top of it. I don't know why. I'm not a weather person. I don't, I'm not sure why. But um, not a weather guesser. Not a weather guesser. No. Nope. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> they got about the same accuracy as we did. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, around that fifty percent. Yeah. 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 I think they get paid more than we do, though. Yeah, a lot more <laughs> than than to do this podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, hmm. Another incident. Um, oh, actually, this is an update or a uh, final report on that Air Canada incident that occurred uh, July 7th, 2017. And uh, let's see, I have um, probably the best way to sum up the, uh, I guess the National Transportation Safety Board held a video conference uh, talking about their final uh, report in this incident. And I think it would be best to play this video. And I think you'll find it interesting, if not amusing. We couldn't have gotten literally or figuratively any closer to having a major disaster. Normally, there are two runways where planes land and one taxiway where planes line up to take off. But that night, one runway was closed. So the pilots thought the taxiway was the runway. Well, the pilots did have a notice to airmen, or NOTAM, that said one runway was closed on page 8 of 27. Board Chairman Robert Sumalt says the NOTAMs are too confusing to be useful for pilots. That's what NOTAMs are. They're just a bunch of garbage that nobody pays any attention to. It was about midnight on July 7, 2017, when Air Canada Flight 759 started to land at SFO in the wrong place. Where's this guy going? He's on the taxiway. Air Canada, go around. In the go around, I count 759. In 759, looks like you were lined up for Charlie there. Video of the event shows the Air Canada plane coming close to hitting other planes that were on the taxiway. Today, we learned just how close. The distances between aircraft was about uh, 13, 13 feet. The investigation revealed that the pilots were fatigued. They had been awake for 19 hours, and if the flight had started in the U.S., the pilots would not have been allowed to fly. And for reserve pilots to be on duty for that long is just uh, nuts. That's a technical term. So based on my airline piloting experience and based on my combined 12 years of sitting here at this dais, uh, I think I've come up with two salient points. One is, and they've already been identified, the NOTAMs. They didn't comprehend the NOTAMs that the runway 28 left was closed, and they didn't manually tune the, uh, the localizer frequency. But the NOTAMs, boy, the NOTAM system is really messed up. I can tell you that right now. And these NOTAMs, uh, there's one on here that says, uh, and by the way, they're written in some kind of language that uh, only a computer programmer would really understand. But the bottom line here is uh, coming out of Toronto, uh, taxiway AK, taxiway R between taxiway B and taxiway AT, between B, between taxiway B1 and taxiway R, not authorized to aircraft with wingspans greater than 214 feet. And so why is that even on there? And that's what NODAMs are. They're just a bunch of garbage that nobody pays any attention to. Remember, Hamadi and I flew down to Charlotte on the jump seat a couple of weeks ago, and uh, just pages and pages and pages of NOTAMs, including birds in the vicinity of the airport. And you ask me, when are birds ever not in the vicinity of an airport? Um, the, uh, you know, these things, if you were to read them, every one of them, you would spend at least 20 minutes going through the NOTAMs and trying to understand. Wow, that uh, was Robert Zumwalt, um, the uh, chairman, I believe, of the National Transportation Safety Board. That's <laughs> pretty strong words. NOTAMs are just a bunch of garbage. And uh, 
yeah. Uh, well, I certainly don't disagree with that. No, I don't think anybody. I, I, I don't think, any think of everyone us. is in agreement. Yeah, no. and they've been talking about trying to fi- trying to fix this for how many years? And yep. I still get a stack, and I know you do, Nick, and I'm sure that Steph's got to go through mm, reams yep. of them as well every time she goes to fly. Uh, now, that's not excusing what happened in this case. Uh, that's just one of the factors, uh, I'd say. Uh, but uh, because they did mention in the final report that on the uh, airport terminal information service, the ATIS recording, or the uh, information that they would have pulled up on their ACARs, did actually say that 28 left was closed as well. So even if they didn't catch it in the NOTAMs, they would have or should have seen it uh, in the uh, ATIS information coming in. Um, and then the other thing that I didn't know about until I was reading this final report is that most approaches, I guess, in that airplane, and maybe the, it works this way on your airplane as well, Captain Nick, when you have a an approach designated in your flight management computer, it will automatically tune the, uh, the correct ILS frequency for you unless, Absolutely. unless yeah. it happened to be San Francisco International on runway 28 right uh, because of the procedures that they were doing because of the close parallel uh, approaches. Uh, they uh, said there was a note on the approach plate that said that you have to manually um, tune in the ILS frequency on that approach. And apparently they missed that. They did not brief that. And they failed to manually have the correct ILS frequency. And uh, if they had done that, there's a very good chance that this would not have happened. Uh, so that was another factor. But, you know, as we talk about all the time on the show, that uh, all of these things, all these accidents slash incidents occur mainly because it wasn't just one little thing. It was all these little things that all added up, you know, the old holes in the Swiss cheese lining up. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there's more to it than just the no tams for sure. But I just, out of curiosity's sake, pulled up uh, for my local airport here that's less than five miles away, small general aviation airport, to see how many uh, relevant notums there were listed. Relevant notums? Well, no, not relevant, but <laughs> notums that they have deemed, uh, yeah, well, whatever. Not many. Notum. 49. <laughs> wow. And that's a GA airport? Uh-huh. Wow. There you go. And then, as you said... Yeah, that's you, for the airport. That's for you know obstructions. It's for TFRs that are current or future. That's for airspace. And for some reason, they feel like they have to use abbreviations... And then the the abbreviations that they use and they come up with, sometimes you go, what in the world is that? Do you have any idea? And then good luck trying to figure out what that abbreviation is, because then you go through all these different manuals and, you know, airway manuals and everything else trying to find what that particular abbreviation means. And half the time you find it, half the time you don't. <laughs> so, Well, even when it's yeah. not abbreviations, sometimes there's so much in one uh, notum. Like it just when they're trying to define a specific airspace, it just gets really confusing. Like I'm looking at this one, it's like area defined as 30 nautical mile radius of, and then it gives like coordinates from the surface to 17,999 feet mean sea level effective. And it gives you a bunch of dates and times within an area defined as 10 nautical mile radius of more coordinates. Uh, and then it keeps going for like another 10 lines of that over and over and over again, trying to tell you like exactly which little area is affected. You just hope that that's on your ForeFlight app, right? And you can see it graphically? Yes. Well, that's the problem. We're we're talking about a communication system that was introduced before we got to ASCII. That's how old 
the system of printing. So there's an there's barely an alphabet in there, and it's all caps. Uh, there's no there's no ability to create diagrams or use anything other than the most basic typewriter style language. So the chance of getting some sort of graphical uh, indication that would explain exactly what they're trying to get across is impossible on no terms because the system just goes back so far into the early days of aviation and has never changed. It's archaic and useless to the modern day pilot. It is, absolutely. And just to explain, I'm trying to work out why their ILS did not auto-tune. Um, I suspect they didn't select uh, an ILS for the approach. If they're selecting a visual approach, the ILS won't auto-tune. So, because um, you've got various approaches you can select uh, on the FMS. So, um, one will be the usual one will be to select the ILS, uh, even if you're not necessarily going to fly it, so that you get the ILS indications up. Uh, and but if you just select a visual, then you won't auto tune. So in this case, in the under the findings of this final report, um, item number two, the first officer did not comply with Air Canada's procedures to tune the instrument landing system frequency for the visual approach, yeah. and the captain did not comply with company procedures to verify the ILS frequency and identifier for the approach. So the crew members yeah. could not take advantage of the ILS's lateral guidance capability to help ensure proper surface alignment. And then number three. The instruction to um, the the okay the flight crew's failure to manually tune the instrument landing system pre frequency for the approach occurred because one, the flight management system bridge visual approach was the only approach in Air Canada's Airbus A320 database that required manual tuning of a navigation frequency. The only one in their database yeah. that required. Yeah manual tuning, and the instruction on the approach chart to manually tune the ILS frequency was not conspicuous during the crew's review of the chart. Now, that may have been because, as you heard them mention in this, uh, in this video, that uh, they were up for 19 hours. It was a long day for them. They were on reserve. They probably got called, at, called in to fly this, to cover this trip, and uh, the, uh, they were flying uh, in the circadian low, uh, between uh, 0200 and 0559. So between 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning is a circadian low, and that's where they were in their body clock. Uh, they were, I guess, uh, eastern time zone, so 3, 3 o'clock in the morning, basically, to them, uh, because it was midnight or shortly after midnight in, on the West Coast. So, you know, it, they, were, they were fatigued. Uh, this was something that was very odd. I mean, they hardly ever have this situation where they have to manually tune the, the uh, frequency. And then they didn't notice that the other runway was closed. So they're this expectation bias, you know, they're, they expect to see a runway on the left and the a runway on the right. Well, all the lights on that left runway were not on. And so they just displaced everything to the right, including their path which was the problem because that's where all the airplanes were on the taxiway. 13 feet, they say. That was definitely a close one. Too close. Way too close. Uh, absolutely. I'm just looking at the approach plates to see if um, – what visual did the, they uh, call The FMS it? bridge. Oh, the, okay. Uh in that case, I've got the tiptoe there. I'm just pulling up the quiet – well, all I've got is the quiet bridge on my plates. That might be it. Uh, the quiet bridge, and it uh, says navades refer to plan view. Radar required too closely spaced parallel approaches. Visual guidance and navade angle 
And then it just says in capitals, lock, localizer, uh, India Gulf Whiskey, Quebec, glass slope three degrees. And that's all it says. It doesn't say that a manual tuning is required. It just advises you that that's the ILS you need to tune if you want localizer guidance. So it's not even clear on my plates either. Well, I'm, I'm using standard Jefferson. So. Yeah, let me, uh, let's see, that was 2.8 right. I probably have the same exact database that you have. Uh, no, I have an FMS bridge visual 2.8 right. Let's see. I have two of them in here for some reason. <laughs> FMS bridge visual approach. Huh. Well, I'll, I'll plan, I'll do the second one. Uh, use normal uh, in the A320, 330, and 350. Use normal RNAV approach procedures. Well, that doesn't help. Um, <laughs> here is actually the, the chart itself. Um, trying to see if there was a note here. Mm. No. If there is one, I'm not seeing It's not really standing out. Maybe they've changed it. They may have. Radar required, DME, DME, IRU, or GPS required. Um, it, maybe, was it something specific to Air Canada's it, A320? Because it Jefferson allow each company to yeah. add modifications to the plates that they receive from Jefferson, so it may be something that Air Canada have done. Oh, there is a note here. It says uh, FMS programming with a ball note one. I just can't find the ball note. So see how clear it is. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, see, we're Very not even flying clear. in an airplane, and we're you know it's in the middle of the day, and yeah. uh, we're having trouble. Uh, and it is, it is one of the problems of the jets that their notes uh, appear scattered randomly over the map. They're not always in the same spot, so you're trying to find a a reference to a note yeah. number they give you, and you do have to hunt around uh, and and really study the approach plate to find out what they're talking about. Yeah, this problem is not as bad as the NOTAM system, but it's not good either. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, good point, Jeff. Good point. <laughs> but, I mean, it is a problem because, as you saw, you just saw two very experienced professional airline pilots trying to see, and we're looking for it. <laughs> These guys weren't looking for it. We were specifically looking for that note, and I could not find it either. So, anyway, some lessons learned from that one, right? Yeah, I think the main one, though, is that uh, you re really have to be sure of the thing you're lining up on uh, is a runway and looks like a runway. There should have been some cues that didn't have proper lighting. No, they and, they uh, did. They were suspicious about it because they said, are you sure? I mean, you want us to land on this runway because we, it looks like there were a bunch of airplanes on it. <laughs> they see lights <laughs> from. And what they were looking at was the taxiway with all the all the airplanes on it. And the tower guy goes, no, there there are no airplanes on the runway. That should have been yeah. like the big red flag yeah. right there. Yeah. And I suspect oh. after 19 hours, they were both just way slower than they would normally have been. Mm -hmm. I would be. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I know, I know me well enough to know that at the end of the day, I'm not nearly as sharp as I was at the beginning of the day. Absolutely. Well, speaking of not being very sharp, um, this occurred um, in another part of the world, Micronesia to be exact, a Pacific Lagoon. Uh, the airline is a uh, the national airline of Papua New Guinea and uh, Air Nuiji or something like that. Where I can't find it now. Um, Air Nuiji. Neo Guinea. 
N-I-U G-I-N-A. So the Ginny is easy. It's how you pronounce N-I-U. That's the problem. Air New Guinea? Well, let's just call him that. Air New Guinea. Perfect. They forgot the G. Let's see. They were operating a flight into this Micronesian airport, and they landed short by about 160 yards. And what would, what would that be? 360 times three is 180, 480 feet, just under 500 feet yeah. uh, short of the runway and into a lagoon and hit it hard. And the water stopped them and the airplane sank after a little bit. And at first they said that everybody got out safely and everybody was rescued. However, the latest is that they are missing uh, a male passenger. And they're working with local authorities and hospitals, investigators trying to find the man. Um, Yeah, so I guess the uh, weather conditions at the time were not good. uh, I think there were some thunderstorms in the area, heavy rain. And uh, obviously they must have lost sight of the runway but continued. I don't know, perhaps they were attempting a go around. It doesn't really give us that information here. Uh, But uh, it crashed and uh, didn't quite make it to the runway. It's interesting that they, uh, they, the U.S. divers uh, have been inside and inspected the aircraft and confirmed that all the passengers safely evacuated. So it's possible this guy got out, but he just wasn't rounded up with the rest of the passengers and wandered off. So, uh, you know, it's a pretty hostile island, that. Uh, it's nasty in places, and uh, areas of civilization are few and far between and relatively small compared with the vast areas of undergrowth and jungles. So I only hope they find him safe and well. But, uh, of course, he could be hiding somewhere. Or it could be cannibals. Could be headhunters. Headhunters. That's what it is. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. If no, you are, well, hopefully. If, if you are a headhunter or a cannibal and I've offended you, I'm sorry. Yeah, particularly since you probably know where he lives. <laughs> it wouldn't take <laughs> much sleuthing to figure it out. <laughs> no, and if you're a headhuntering cannibal, uh, Jeff doesn't want you calling around. Yes, please. I was just kidding. Apparently, they, they don't have good sense of humor, though. Uh, good, a good sense of humor. Who can blame them? <sighs> I know. Wow. I don't know. I can think of a lot of possibilities for where this guy could be, could be but hopefully they uh, find him safely after yeah, it could, all. It could be that they carted him off to a hospital somewhere and they just lost track. I, yeah. I love the quote from passenger Bill James who said, I thought we landed hard, he said, until I looked over and saw a hole in the side of the plane and water was coming in. And I thought, well, this is not the way it's supposed to happen. <laughs> Very clever person, that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good old you know, Bill. if you look out the window while you're landing, you can also avoid that kind of confusion. <laughs> look out the window? Yeah. What's that? I don't know. Does anyone do that anymore? <laughs> Not many. No, there aren't any windows anymore. <laughs> oh. oh, boy. Um, all right. Well, uh, hopefully they'll find that person and we'll find him safe and sound. Um, those brand new spanking fancy F-35B fighters... Uh, they lost one. Um, well, they didn't lose one. It crashed. Uh, an F-35B crashed uh, in South Carolina near the Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort. The pilot safely ed- ejected from the aircraft and is currently being looked at by medical personnel, according to Captain Christopher Harrison, 
uh, spokesman for the Marines. And the aircraft belonged to the 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron 501. They're also known as the Warlords. And uh, they don't know what happened here, why the aircraft crashed. Uh, Friday's crash occurred just one day after the Corps' F-35B flew its first combat mission, uh, ground clearance airstrike in Afghanistan. I'm not sure, but I think this may be the first time that an F-35 has crashed. Is that true? I don't know. I'm not aware of any others, but I'm not the best for military uh, uh, incidents. Yeah. I, I believe it is uh, from what I from what I've uh, I haven't read of one uh, yeah. going in before, but I was just uh, mulling over how much that would have cost them. So um, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. so they they're designed to be a low cost fighter, uh, taking advantage of economy of scale and commonalities between the th- three variants. And uh, since the first F thirty five was built, production costs have dropped approximately sixty percent. So on the uh, the LRAP ten contracts, which are the current ones, the average airframe costs nearly eight percent lower than the nine, for example, and sixty two percent lower than the one um so the current cost of the vertical takeoff ones is 122.4 million that's a bargain actually i think so i think that's great i don't have any frame of reference for what a fighter jet costs (laughs) well you know i actually thought of money to me i thought it was more than that actually well don't forget that the original ones would have been 60 percent more than that yeah so yeah they were pretty pricey very well, I'll just uh, take this opportunity to apologize for all of the bad news out of South Carolina this week. Yeah. What's going on there? I don't know. All right. Well, this <laughs> this next one, Steph, you'll be happy to know, did okay. not happen in South Carolina. Uh, this was uh, an Indian, Indonesian air traffic controller who sacrificed his life to ensure a plane carrying hundreds of people safely. Wait. A plane carrying hundreds of people safely made it off the ground after Friday's earthquake. Uh, His name, Antonius Gunawan Agung, 21, was the only person left in the control tower at the air traffic tower of Mutiari Sis Al Yufri Airport in Palu when a magnitude 7.5 quake struck the coastal city on Friday. His colleagues had run for their lives, cowards. When the tower started to sway and walls started to crack, but Mr. Agung stayed to make sure that Batik Air Flight 6321, which was on the runway at the time, took off safely. And uh, let's see, he gave clearance for this flight, and if he left his post before the plane was airborne, hundreds of people inside the plane might be in danger according to a spokesperson. Soon after the plane took off, the tower trembled, and Mr. Agung decided to jump off the fourth floor of the tower, thinking the building would collapse any time. He broke his leg and suffered internal injuries in the fall. His colleagues rushed him to the nearest hospital before a doctor recommended he be taken out of the city to get better treatment. We prepared a helicopter from a city that begins with a B to one that begins with a K. Balik Papan. Balik Papan. In Kalimantan. To Kalimantan. Yeah. According to Mr. Sorayet. Unfortunately, we lost him this morning before the helicopter reached Palu. 
the earthquake that hit on Friday incapacitated the Palu airport. The air traffic tower was severely damaged and cracks disabled 250 meters of the runway. And uh, the airport is currently operating on 2,000 meters of runway, just enough for emergency search and rescue and humanitarian aid purposes. Wow. So this dude was committed to his job and to the life of others, and we salute him and rest in peace. Oh, absolutely. I applaud mm-hmm. his devotion to duty. So that's fantastic. I, I, I'm I, not certain whether it would have been safer for the aircraft to get airborne or stay on the ground, depending upon what happened to the runway in front of them as they were going down the runway in the middle of a, a 7.5 on the Richter scale uh, magnitude quake, because uh, if the runway had jumped up in front of them with their gear off, it might have been just a nightmare but uh the aircraft got us safely so hats off uh to that fine air trafficker mr agung um and he looks like you know the crew and he made the right decision in the end whether they'd have been safer just sitting on the ground and waiting for it all to finish i don't know yeah i think that it's very likely that they the people in the airplane unless they were told that there was an earthquake they probably wouldn't have noticed it unless they you know, we're still stationary because once you start rolling, I mean, I've, I've been in earthquakes in California, uh, while moving in a car and you can't, you don't know, unless, as you said, Captain Nick, the, uh, the runway buckles and there's a big slab of concrete staring you in the face. You wouldn't uh, know. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, I hate to end the news segment on such a sad note, but that's it for our news folder today. And Do we have some uplifting feedback? I hope up? so. Good. If not, we'll make some up. Captain, incoming message. Well, here's an uplift. Oh, this is not uplifting. <laughs> First one. Thanks a lot, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, hmm. Let me. I'm just looking through the feedback to see if there are any. Uh, I mean, there, there are some, you just have to postpone your uplifting Delayed feeling. Gratification. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> this is from Sean and G man. Uh, the guy that I pronounce Glaucus Glaucus. And he, he keeps promising to send in some audio feedback, uh, with the proper pronunciation of his, of his name, but he still hasn't, he's still giving us excuses for that. Anyway. Uh, two separate articles on the same incident, and this incident was a Jet Airways Boeing 737-800 uh, performing flight 9697 from Mumbai to Jaipur. Jaipur? Right? Um, hello? Jaipur. Jaipur. Okay. With 166 people on board, departed Mumbai's runway 27 when the passenger oxygen masks were released. The crew stopped the climb at 11,000, descended the aircraft to 10,000 feet, returned to Mumbai for a landing on runway 27 without further incident about 40 minutes after departure. A number of passengers suffered from bleeding noses and ears and were checked by medical staff. A number of passengers were taken to a hospital, and five of those were diagnosed with barotrauma of the ears. That does not sound like fun. Uh, India's Ministry of Civil Aviation reported 30 passengers were affected, suffering nosebleeds and ear bleeds. The DGCA has been instructed to file its report into the occurrence immediately. The crew has been suspended pending the investigation. 
The DGCA is following up on reports suspecting that the crew forgot to turn on a switch needed for proper cabin pressure control. Passengers reported that there had been a very sharp drop of cabin pressure causing nose and ear bleeds. The oxygen masks were released. Um, I would say that there was probably a very sharp increase of pressure all of a sudden when they realized that they had forgotten to open the bleed valves. This is not making total sense to me. No. For a start, I wouldn't have thought the mask would drop at only 11,000 feet. They, they may normally have. would come down at thirteen or 14,000. Right. And uh, I, from the reports I read from other sources, they got considerably higher. But, uh, and I think they probably wondered at some point, hey, you know, what's going on with my ears? And, you know, it, it took them way too long to notice that the cabin wasn't being pressurized and they go, Oh yeah, you look idiot. You, you forgot to turn the bleeds on. Okay. Let's just turn the bleeds on. Yeah. That's, that sounds much more uh, credible because if they only got as far as 10,000 or 11,000 feet, I mean, climbing at that rate, you are going to notice that it is going to make your ears hurt, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it'd be enough to cause that much. Know, that, that, uh, that outflow valve would be, completely closed because the thing is trying to, you know, maintain pressurization or actually pressurize the airplane at that point. And it could be that with the engines at climb power, that's a lot of pneumatic pressure uh, going through the packs, pressurizing the airplane. And I think that's what happened. Um, And the thing that was even more concerning to me is that there was no announcement by the crew, according to one of the passengers, and nobody knew what to do. That's Mm. very concerning to me. Yeah. Anyway. Nine whiskey, nine. So I'm, I've just had a quick look at, uh, um, at our usual source on this. Uh, what's it called again? In the there. Aviation uh, Herald. Aviation Herald. And I may have found a different one, <laughs> which is also a 737-800. I'm trying to see if it's the same one. This is flight 7 Charlie 101 from... Uh, in South Korea, I think it's a different one. Yeah, that's different. Is, yeah, that's different. This one was in. But yeah. reading it, it's so similar. Hmm. Uh, they forgot to set the pressurization. What it is it about these Boeing seven three seven eight hundreds? There it is. So hard to put the- <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Just an excuse. Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> this is the latest version of this airplane, and they they can't fix uh, it, so it warns the crew of this. Uh, well, there you go. But you know. I don't know about you, but on my airplane, if the, you forget to um, put the automatic, uh, the outflow valve in the automatic position, which you should not forget to do because it's a checklist item, but occasionally it's, it's, it's missed. And as soon as you take off, you know immediately that because your ears are telling you something is not normal, uh, the way you're, you're, the pressure is changing in your inner ear. And then my first thing to do is I always look down at that 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 valve that, to make sure it's in the automatic position and sometimes it's still closed so yeah. um, I, I don't know why this crew didn't notice this until way too late but we're humans I guess 
Yeah, it's just that eventually, you know, you get to the point where so many of these uh, occurrences are happening, including ones that lead to great loss of life, as happened in the Helios 737 that got all the way up to its cruising altitude without pressurizing and killed everybody on board. Um, you think to yourself, Boeing have got to put a decent uh, warning system in there that is unambiguous and comes on at a suitable level. I mean, the Airbus one comes on at about two and a half thousand feet after takeoff uh, to remind you that you've forgotten to put the bleeds on. And I'm not sure about the 7-3 if, if they're, I, I, I'm not sure because I don't fly it. I've never, never flown it. Um, trying to remember the 727, but I don't think we took off with the packs off. We took off with them on. Uh, same thing with the air, airplane that I'm currently flying right now. Now I know it's standard practice for the, in the Airbus fleet for you to take off with the air conditioning packs off and then i understand why it's engineered to have this warning that oh just in case they forget to turn it on at 2500 feet let's give them a warning if they haven't yeah. turned them on but if it's supposed to be on before you even start your takeoff then there's really i would think or the the way they're thinking i'm sure is well there's no reason to have a warning if they forgot to turn them on because it's supposed to be on before they take off but i don't know I guess you could argue anyway, that. Our, um, in case we're wondering, our resident uh, 737 driver in the chat room right now, Nico, says there is no warning system to switch on the bleeds on the 737. Okay. There you go. That's what happens when you fly 1950s airplanes. Let's go to item <laughs> eight. I'm going to take a ride on a 737 tomorrow. Well, I hope yeah. they forget. They remember. I hope they remember <laughs> yeah, they to. Uh, oh, by the way, if anyone has got a video of a seven thirty seven flying under a bridge, I'd really like to. See <laughs> no, it. no, no, no. He's kidding. All right, <laughs> item eight. Send uh, him everything you can find. Really. <laughs> our producer said, uh, "Send us some internal communications." Go to item eight, Jeff. It's an uplifting one, and uh, this was sent in by Mark. He took a snapped a picture of a sign in front of Lake of the Woods Brewing Company. And it says in big giant letters, uh, IPAs make me hoppy. Yeah, oh, see, play on words, happy, hoppy. Uh, it's Ontario's northernmost brewery, according to the sign. Very there you cool. go. That sounds nice. Let's go there tomorrow. Okay, let's do. Sounds yeah. cold. Thank you, Mark, for sending northernmost that Northernmost brewery it... in Ontario. <laughs> yeah, it does. Winter's coming. Well, I can say one thing about this. This is a sign. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay. Captain Steve sent a link to this Facebook video. Did you guys get a chance to look at it? I have seen this multiple times <laughs> over. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, Steph, why don't you explain what this video um, is, is showing us? Yeah. So what we're watching here is a uh, serious, I believe it's an SR-22, if I remember correctly. It's been a week or so since I've watched the video. Um but the guy who is going to fly it has um, taken it out of the hangar and it's still kind of between two hangars. And then you see him hand propping the Cirrus. What does that mean? That means that he is attempting to start the engine by turning the propeller. Is that a normal thing on a Cirrus? No, it's not. Usually there's like an electric starter, right? Yes, there's an electric starter and you can even hook it up to external power if you need to, if the battery is but I mean, is, is there a walk-around check that requires you to turn the propeller around? No. And this is a three-bladed propeller, too. It uh, is a three-bladed. That seems even more dangerous than a standard two-bladed. Yeah. I, I've never heard of anyone 
hand propping is yours. Okay, we'll continue. What? Ha- what? So he he's hand propping. The, so he does not. Ha- so if you're if you're going to hand prop an aircraft, um, a couple things. Either you need to you need some way of ensuring that it's not going to start moving forward as soon as you get the engine started. Why would it start moving forward? Because that's how an aircraft propels itself. When <laughs> oh. the propeller is moving, it's going to move forward. Ah, okay. So uh, there's several ways to do it. You can have it tied down. You can have it chalked. If it's so, some small aircraft, you do have to hand prop to start, um, especially older ones and very lightweight ones. Um, so that's a feasible option if you're a single, if you're doing everything by yourself. Um, there are ways to do that, or you can have someone sitting in the aircraft um, with their hand, you know hands on the controls, feet on the brakes, basically. Um, I guess there actually was someone in the passenger it looks seat. Like it. <laughs> who did none of these who things. bailed out. Yeah. And would you, uh, would you have regular, I mean, what, what is the pressure? Uh, what, what keeps the brakes pressurized? Is it just manual pressure or is it manual pressure okay. on the brakes? All right. Uh, so, hmm. and if the passenger, how does the passenger accidentally turn off the parking brake? Well, I mean, I'm doing the easily parking brake done. Do you set, just tap the toes? I or? wouldn't, I would not, um, rely on a parking brake to hold the aircraft back. No, neither if hand it. Um, anyway, so what happens is the guy gets the engine started, so the propeller's turning, and the aircraft starts moving immediately. So he runs around to the side to try and jump back into the aircraft as it's now moving across the field. And he doesn't do a very good job of it. Um, he struggles quite a bit, and uh, you'll have to watch the video because it's, it's almost humorous. Um, but he does eventually collide with another hangar. So yeah, it's a, almost hits a very I, nice car. Almost well. hits a very nice car, right? Uh, Rex's Rick, airplane. Yes, if it's his airplane. Yeah, that's true. Wh- whoever's airplane it is. Now you see, I, I've got enormous sympathy uh, with this plate. Have you done this I, too? Do you remember the story <laughs> I told? Of oh, I do remember the story. Oh, yeah. that you told. a propeller uh, of a Cessna 150 inside a hangar. And uh, as I straightened the propeller, the engine started. (laughs) And uh, the airplane started to advance across the hangar towards me. (laughs) And I did exactly what this bloke did. I had to dance around the propeller and jump up into the cockpit. Luckily, I managed to get to the magnetos in time to prevent the thing from um, causing any damage. But I wasn't trying to start it. I was just positioning the propeller. How much did you you move it? How much did you have to move it? Uh, no, 45 degrees, just over top dead center. So I oh. just swung it around through um, 45 degrees. And to do on. that, I had to go over the compression cycle. And yeah. as I came out the other side again and just straightened it, it, it kicked and fired and started. And it was my own stupid fault because I just parked that airplane in there. In fact, I just pushed it in, holding the propeller. Uh, and when I climbed out of it after stopping the engine using the mixture, uh, I had neglected to take the key, turn the magnetos off and take the key out. So ah. the magnetos were still alive. There was obviously still a little bit of petrol left mm-hmm. gathered in the carburetor, just enough to let the engine run, just enough to nearly kill me. Well, we're happy that it didn't. Indeed. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> I know you part too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, it's worth watching the video. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah. sort of funny in a way because it's not our airplane and nobody got hurt. As far as yeah. I know, I can't, I can't. As far as I know, no one got hurt. Maybe the guy I mean, that was <laughs> trying, trying to, to get back it. into the plane. Yeah. 
the one that propped it. The, the guy was in the passenger uh, seat, uh, bailed early on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was it him who jumped out? Well, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you're, See, I I'm didn't wondering, realize. I, what, oh, what, what was he thinking? You know, if he's already <laughs> in the airplane, yeah. why don't well, you? he was not given instructions on how to use the brakes. <laughs> you just, you know, push down with your toes on the top of these pedals. Run away, run away. Uh, okay. Check it out. If anything uh, happens, you know kill the mixture <laughs> yeah maybe the person had no idea all that yeah, was I'm sure, I, I'm sure they didn't get any instruction yeah on what to do i mean it, it comes quite fast it looks like the throttle is not idle no, no. would i be right in saying that so he's, he's not only is he set it up badly mm-hmm. i mean uh yeah he hasn't chucked it or done anything so and it almost it's hard to tell in the video but it almost looks as if the that it was like a, a downhill as well slight um, I couldn't quite tell from the yeah, the video, but maybe not. it could have been. All right. Enough of that, I guess, huh? Yeah. Is that has that made you feel better now, Jeff? Bit of Schadenfreude? Yeah. I'm much happier now. <laughs> you know what really makes me happy though? Is our discussion about the uh replacement of the T thirty eight talent. Oh, right. Uh they you know, we talked about on an earlier show that uh, they were gonna announce the uh the award. And we had talked mm. about a different couple of different companies that were vying for this contract, and uh, Boeing got it. And uh, but before the announcement, Jim Howard sent this to us. Um, he was the uh, F4 Weapon Systems Officer. Um, he says, "Hello, pilots. Recently, y'all talked. Oh, I see. He's a navigator. Hello, pilots. Recently, y'all talked a little bit about the U.S. Air Force TX training program." Uh, on the show, I was already preparing or planning an article on the subject for a group blog I follow. The contract award is due by the end of September, so I may not get the article done in time, but I thought I'd share my notes with you in case you find this subject interesting. And uh, so he sent us the the notes in the blog post, and a lot of great information there regarding the different um, uh, versions or the different um, candidates for the uh, TX aircraft T-38 replacement, uh, Boeing and Saab teamed together for one of them, and they were the ones that won it, uh, Lockheed and um, Korean Aerospace, Aerospace Industries um, got getting together, uh, and they put forward the T-50A based on the Korean T-50 fighter, which was developed between Korean Aerospace Industries and Lockheed. And uh, what was the other one? Leonardo DRS T100 based on the Alenia Ermaki M346 Master Leonardo. Uh, or, well, I don't think that's all the name there. I think that there should have been a period in there. Um, Master Leonardo proposes to build the T100 in Tuskegee, Alabama. But I guess they lost the bid as well. And he says, Captain Nick asked, Captain Nick asked if the BAE Hawk was in the competition and BAE decided that the Hawk could not meet the U S air force requirements. So they commissioned a single engine prototype trainer, which as seen in taxi tests at Mojave airport in California, in the end BAE withdrew from the competition. Anyway, there's some other good information in there that he put in his blog post, which we'll include in the show notes as well. And then right below that is this article U S air force, awards the $9 billion contract to uh, Boeing for the next training jet. A Boeing-Saab partnership has won the bid. 
It's a pretty good looking jet, I'd say. Do you see the picture there? Uh, looks uh, like yeah, a lot of great sweet. visibility. See how big that canopy yeah. is? Yeah, sweet looking yeah. airplane. Yeah. I love the t the uh, twin tails. It makes it look very cool. That is very nice as well. Um, yeah. Anyway. Nice photo up there in uh, St. Louis. Also. Yeah, right uh, right in front of uh, Boeing Arch. St. Louis. Yeah. Did any of them fly underneath that McDonald's arch there? <laughs> yeah, you could probably do it. I've, I've been thinking about doing it with the Mad Dog, but I thought, yeah, I should probably wait for my retirement flight to do that. That's a good one, yeah. yeah. If you measure it and make sure you're Yeah, I need straight. to make sure that I need to check yeah. the notums to see uh, what kind of wingspan <laughs> <laughs> you uh, need to get through it. Um, Boeing's award for the TX uh, training program marks the third major victory by the company in about a month. I guess they got Navy, the Navy's first four MQ-25 unmanned tankers and a another contract worth up to $2.38 billion to manufacture the Air Force's Huey replacement helicopter. So it, the military side of the Boeing Corporation uh, has been scoring some victories. And yeah. now we await the snide comment from Captain Nick. I was just looking at the the poor pilots that have to fly this, particularly if they're mixed gender, because it says air crew, two persons crew, average nude air crew member weight of 200 pounds each. So uh, I'm just wondering why they have to fly in the nude. <laughs> it's all about weight. Is it? Yeah. I mean, it, you could read it a different way. It says average nude air crew member weight of 200 pounds. So what's that? I mean, that's pretty big. I know you guys are impressively endowed over there in the States, but geez. <laughs> I don't know. Leave it to Nick to find where did, that. Where did you nugget. even see that? <laughs> I don't know. That's there in the, uh, in the specifications, just near the bottom, under aircraft. Oh, I see it. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Two-person crew, average nude air crew member. Weight of <laughs> that was the specifications for any of the uh, manufacturers. Yeah, not just Boeing. Order. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. I thought, well, it must be something weird about the USAF then. That's all I can <laughs> yeah. say. It's a little kinky. A little I guess kinky. they know how much airways, <laughs> so they can actually factor that in without having much variability. No, Steph, I think it's just we're a bunch of pervs in the U.S. Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. And I'm looking at the little picture. Those those people in that in those airplanes are not nude. No. So they're obviously, nope. They're, they're uh, breaking the rules. They're not apparently. adhering to the... <laughs> To the requirements of the project. <laughs> Makes for an interesting scenario if you have to eject. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd be watching these people coming down their parachutes going, ah, oh, geez, you're not from that next-gen trainer, are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, let's move on to uh, a piece of feedback sent in by our main man, Micah. He wrote in with this um, link to a seattletimes.com article, and uh, it's regarding the, what is it called, the um, reauthorization, the FAA reauthorization bill. So we're going to talk about that for the next few minutes. Uh, this article says, Congress takes aim at shrinking seats and legroom on airplanes. Uh, the it says Congress faces a September 30th deadline to keep FAA programs running. By the way, they did pass. This did pass the House, and now it's uh, off to the Senate. 
The Senate will need to uh, also need to take up the bill this week, or both chambers will need to pass a short-term extension. And I believe part of the law that was passed in the House also included some kind of an extension to, in case the Senate isn't able to get to it right away. But um, Senator Bill Nelson of Florida said lawmakers from both chambers agreed it was time to take action on, quote, ever-shrinking seats. And he says relief could soon be on the way for weary airline passengers facing smaller and smaller uh, seats. And uh, let's see, uh, scrolling down here, uh, the uh, article that uh, talks about the fact that it was passed uh, HR 302, a $90 billion five-year FAA reauthorization bill passed in the House of Representatives by a vote of 398 to 23 on September 26th, so just four days ago. The legislation addresses industry workfor- workforce programs, aviation safety, drone integration, and other issues. But to the relief of all general aviation, it makes no mention of the so-called air traffic control privatization. We talked about that several times on our show uh, months ago. And uh, this actually, this article is from the AOPA. And uh, let's see, immediately after passing the bill, the House voted on a one-week extension. I just mentioned that uh, a few seconds ago. Um Drones take up a significant portion of H.R. 302. The bill addresses the safe integration of drones into the airspace, including restrictions on model aircraft flying above 400 feet and in Class B, C, D, or E airspace. It also gives the FAA more flexibility in approving drone applications and directs the agency to update its rules regarding drones carrying property while flying for hire. H.R. 302 also makes changes to safety requirements following a series of aviation accidents. The bill includes mandating medical certificates for hot air balloon pilots after the 2016 crash in Texas that killed 16 people. It also seeks to strengthen requirements for fuel systems and helicopters, calls for a mandated review of oxygen mask design after social media exposed passengers' inability to correctly use masks aboard a Southwest Airlines flight in April. All this stuff that we've covered in the past on our show. Um Let's see. One of the things that I was very concerned about, a couple, two things, actually, the privatization, which I'm very happy was not included in this bill. Um, the, um, the other thing was the money or the authorization to do research on single pilot commercial freight operations. And uh, you'll remember that we were against that. And uh, luckily, according to ALPA, a little blurb from them, The bill maintains life-saving first officer qualification, training, and experience requirements, and the presence of two fully qualified pilots in the cockpit of every FAR Part 121 passenger and cargo aircraft. So apparently they were successful in getting that removed from uh, from the law, and... The thing that Micah was concerned about, the, uh, the sh- ever-shrinking seats, uh, they, um, that, was not, that didn't make it into the bill as proposed. The seat regulations uh, will only require that the FAA regulate seat size to prevent potential safety hazards, uh, which will likely leave the seat size unchanged. And uh, uh, one good thing was, um, and I believe we're going to have some feedback uh, in a little bit regarding this, uh, supersonic flight 
currently prohibited in the, in the United States also may be on track toward legalization. This new legislation directs the FAA to consult with the aviation industry on what a regulatory framework for supersonic flight should look like and issue a report to Congress within a year. Uh, this is a quote from Boom or El Dorado of Denver-based aviation company, Boom. From our perspective, this is the most forward-leaning language from Congress on supersonics since the 1960s. Uh, it's clear that Congress wants a supersonic renaissance, and we think that, with policymaker support, the return of commercial supersonic flight is only a matter of time. There. So, got a little taste of what was included in the bill, what was not included, and uh, the good news is, when it, you know, it's not completely passed, of course, the Senate has to pass as well, and then the president sign it, but um, I think that it has a good chance of passing in its present form, and it looks like a lot of good stuff was excluded from the bill and included. So, what do you think about this, Steph? I agree with um pretty much everything that's in it at this point i need to say that uh, there looks like a four-legged four-legged taco behind you be careful yeah i had to go um while you were reading most of that i had to go see what he was barking at the top of his lungs about and it turns out it's the deer in the neighborhood are sitting right in front of my front door at the moment oh and oh, he has positioned himself <laughs> up there because he can actually see out the window in the direction of where the deer are so i was just thinking i actually need to close the blinds on the window so he doesn't oh, but he looks like he's settling down though yeah that's a good thing yeah. I don't trust him still. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So, you know, the stuff that we were worried about didn't make it in. Um, other things that are, that sound like good ideas did make it in and that's how it should, should be. Yeah. It's such a shame that the seat uh, pitch uh, didn't become a, a center point of it. Cause I don't suppose there's a single passenger in the United States that uh, would like to see smaller and less legroom. So, uh, you know, I think that would just be an incredibly popular thing to have in. Yeah, but then I also read something that said that they want to be careful not to get to the point where they're regulating our industry again and because they made such a big deal of deregulation that uh, they want to try to stay out of that, I guess. Yeah. That's the excuse anyway. I, I can understand that, but it wouldn't I have been nice also if they uh, started conducting, uh, you know, a complete review of the evacuation timing procedures, how these tests are conducted and how they're affected by different seat pitches and cabin layouts. Uh, yeah, sure. Although I will say, having uh, traveled in several different countries in the past year, the United States, it, at least I haven't gone around and measured, but the seat width and pitch do feel much larger here compared to some countries I have been in recently. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean including Europe, South America. Europe. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. There are some very, very small, narrow, confined feeling seats on aircraft out there. Okay. Thanks, Micah, for uh, submitting that piece of feedback and getting us discussing this bill. But uh, I think overall... It was a it was a good thing, and it passed. I think it's been I don't know how many years, uh, Steph, since they've actually had a, a reauthorization bill pass, and not a temporary. Oh, it's this been is a, a long permanent time. one. Yeah, it's been a long time. So, yeah, hopefully it'll go smoothly through the Senate. All right, um, this from Dave, aka Bob, and it's his first feedback, and it's audio feedback. Actually, it's more it's audio and 
text feedback. So I'm going to read the text right now. Hey, APG crew, I'm happy to say that this is my first bit of audio feedback. I'm also sorry to say this is my first audio feedback. (laughs) It shouldn't have taken me so long to get to you. First off, thank you for taking the time to listen to the attached audio feedback. As I mentioned in my somewhat unorganized thoughts, I had the opportunity to take my first general aviation flight in the form of a discovery flight last December. I was so excited. The instructor pilot that I flew with took a pic of me by the plane, the airplane we flew. I've attached that to this feedback as well. Thanks for a wonderful podcast. I'll be enjoying a cold beer momentarily, and it will be held up in a toast to you all. Although it won't be an IPA, rather an Oktoberfest, as it is quite appropriate for this time of year. And uh, a very nice photo of Bob in front of November 7790 Tango. And now, without further ado, let's hear from Dave or Bob or whoever this is. Good morning, APG crew. Uh, My name is Dave, a.k.a. Bob. Uh, Don't ask me how I got that nickname, but uh, it's... uh yeah, I go by Bob now. Uh, I am a longtime listener, uh, but I haven't been able to stay current uh, with every single episode up until uh, probably three months ago. I moved to the South Texas area, and uh, I live on the coast, but I work inland, so it's about an hour each way commute for me. So I'm having a good chance to uh, to get more caught up with the with the episodes i started uh listening again with episode 333 uh the farm uh, uh episode and i've gotten current up to episode 340 i'm waiting for 341 to come out today uh so we'll see that one hopefully uh hopefully pop into my podcast tonight uh, i have uh probably about 100 episodes under my belt so uh, I'm not quite a syndrome sufferer yet, but I'm getting there. I'm starting to feel some symptoms. Uh, so keep me in your thoughts and prayers and send some medication for me. Um, I, I don't know if my insurance would cover go around a cylinder. Uh, so with that said, uh, when I was listening to episode 333, um, the plane tail that was there was the Sea Monsters uh, episode. And Captain Nick had a great explanation about ground effect um, and a little bit of backstory uh, on my aviation history. I've, I've been a, a fan of aviation ever since I can remember. Um, I remember one of my first flights was on a C-5 when my dad was in the U.S. Air Force and we took a hop from, uh, I want to say somewhere in California, maybe Sacramento. Uh, over to Hawaii where we were stationed um, for about two years or so back in the early 80s. Um, That was an enjoyable experience. Uh, I absolutely fell in love with aviation at that point, but I never had any kind of uh, general aviation experience until just recently last year when I turned 40. uh, I kept begging and begging and begging and ultimately the, the wife caved and uh, she got a discovery flight for me. Uh, and this uh, discovery flight was on a Cessna 172. So uh, I really enjoyed every bit of that flight. Um, had some fun learning what, uh, what a stall was. I already knew what it was, but I'd never experienced it. Um, 
and after I recovered my composure from the first one, we practiced a couple uh, and enjoyed those thoroughly, and I just really had a great time with that. Uh, I've always wanted to get my private pilot's license, and that was a great way to start. Unfortunately, the, the time commitment is a bit much, and the financial uh, with us just recently having us moved is, uh, is a bit of a crunch. So, uh, so the, the question that came to my mind, listening to the plane tail uh, with ground effect, typically that's, gonna, um, that's going to be uh, more, more apt to happen with a low-wing aircraft. But with the Cessna 172, uh, how much ground effect do aircraft with high wings uh, tend to uh, tend to experience the ground effect? Uh, I know you guys primarily all fly commercial airliners. Maybe this is a question better directed towards uh, Dr. Steph. But uh, what kind of ground effect is a high wing aircraft and and like a trainer a 172? Um, going to experience and, and how much factor does that play into your landing uh, landing procedures so uh, that's my question I really do appreciate you guys you put out a great podcast uh, I enjoy listening to it even though uh, most of my most of my uh, appreciation of flying is towards general aviation uh, anytime I can get up into the air is a great experience. Uh, I'm not as frequent a flyer on commercial airlines because I'm more locally based with my life. Uh, so maybe someday I'll be uh, be a hundred thousand a year frequent flyer. Uh, but at this point, no. My my desire is to get up in a 172 uh, or a Cirrus and just enjoy the skies. So. Uh, hopefully sometime in the near future I can get that done. Uh, but I appreciate you guys and keep up the great work. And uh, blue skies and tailwinds and all that jazz. Bye. Well, Bob, we appreciate you and the fact that you took the time to uh, send us feedback, audio feedback at that. So uh, much appreciated and so happy to see you take the Discovery flight. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you nagged your wife. Just continue nagging. <laughs> Yeah, that's the trick. <laughs> so, Steph, he mentioned um, ground effect. He had a question in there mm-hmm. uh, regarding, um, he, you know, he says that he thought that ground effect is, is probably something uh, more of a factor for a low wing configurated uh, configuration. Um, and he was wondering how that all works with the uh, high wing Cessnas. Yep, that is true. Um, but you can still be in ground effect in a high wing aircraft as well, like a Cessna. It has to do with the um, distance from the ground to the, the wing. So basically what's happening is you're moving in a forward fashion and the wing is creating lift. Um, you have to go back to like Newton's uh which one is it? Third law, where every action has an equal and opposite reaction. But anyway, it's moving, you know, you have airflow there. So something has to happen to the airflow that it's using to create that lift. And basically it's being deflected downward. So as you get close to the ground, you're getting this downward force from the air that's being deflected by the wing to generate lift, which creates kind of this cushion of air that the aircraft settles onto. Um, so if the wing is closer to the ground, you're going to feel that a little bit more pronounced than you would if the air, if the wing is higher from the ground. Um, but you can still feel it in, in a high wing aircraft. It's all just a matter of practicing landings and being comfortable with the aircraft that you're flying. Um, having flown 172 recently, uh, well, 
my sense is um, the low-wing aircraft that I've flown in the past tend to be heavier, um, which tends to negate some of the um, ground effect that you feel, in, in my opinion. That may be different depending on which pilot you you talk to. Um, so I always feel as though they settle onto the runway a little bit quicker than the high-wing aircraft. Um, but I don't think in most small general aviation aircraft, single-engine aircraft, that there's too much of a difference there. Yeah, good point. Never thought of that. Yeah, I think you're right. It seems like the low-winged airplanes, the Pipers and the Cirruses and such, are are uh, are heavier. So that might offset the uh, difference in the ground. And that's effect. just that's just my perspective right. of how I experience it. So, yeah. Um, I will say that um, I think the Diamond aircraft are a little bit lighter, um, and they are low-wing as well. So you can feel it a little bit more there, being closer to the ground. And they do sit very close to the ground. Yeah, and they look like gliders. Yeah, and <laughs> they have me. a very efficient wing. They do not like to stop flying. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much, Steph, and uh, Dave and Bob <laughs> for your feedback. And we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Now, guess what time it is? The best part of the show? That's it. All right. It's this week's Plain Tale episode, part two of Captain Al and the Spotty M. The old pilot's plain tales, Captain Al and the Spotty M. In the previous part of Captain Al's story of the demise of his airline, Monarch, he described the lead up to the day they finally shut their doors. In this final part of the interview, we hear of the heartrending effect that the closure had on the employees. When you were on the aircraft chatting to your crews in the last few weeks, uh, what was the what was the word going around? I guess you were a centre of attention. They all wanted to know what you knew. Yes, and I was very honest and said, yes, we see the accounts, but we don't know what the company plans. We couldn't elaborate, obviously, because we were subject to confidentiality clauses. But we weren't privy to any information other than the simple numbers. Now, anybody who comes from an accountancy background will look at a set of accounts and go, well, you can interpret that many ways you choose. Um, we knew that there was money in the bank, and that's the two things that an airline needs to be successful, money in the bank and passenger confidence. Without those two elements, you don't continue as an airline. We knew there was money in the bank, but we also knew that that money was disappearing at an alarming rate. Business is a tough world, and when, when your competitors know that you're in difficulties, they put the squeeze on. That's just that's life. Um, so, you know, ever increasingly, we were being pushed harder and harder. And um, you know, in the final summer, when I saw advertised prices with one of our competitors of. Birmingham to Tenerife and back for £20. You know that that is just putting the pressure on. So the crews uh, just carried on regardless? Absolutely. It was that typical British, stiff, upper lip, stoic. Uh, the cabin crew, to their absolute credit, gave top-class customer service in the last minutes. Yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When it came to it, it actually was better organized and better uh, informed than a lot of airlines that have gone bust where crews have been abandoned down route and nobody knows what the devil is going on. So when it actually came to it, what happened? 
Well, we were very lucky in some respects because as a purely short-haul airline, um, we had no crews that were night-stopping um, outside of the UK. So the company CEO made the decision that he, as a director of the company, could no longer legally allow the company to trade because it was going towards an insolvent position. It still had many millions in the bank, but the burn rate was so high that it was unsustainable. So he made the decision to uh, put the company into administration. That effectively means that the the managers of the, the business can no longer manage it and put it in the hands of an official appointed administrator. The CIA, of course, were heavily involved and the decision was made that a rescue would have to be put together for the many passengers who were stranded and the CAA needed 24 hours to get that in place. So we flew our final day uh, basically with the administrators and the CAA sat in the background calling the shots um, and in many respects it was just a normal day at work. We didn't know when you know the the guillotine was going to fall when, when it was all going to come to an end. So it was, in many respects, just a normal day. No, so there was, a, there was a good reason for not trying to advertise the fact that they were going to close the doors. What was that? Well, there, there was um, a couple of reasons, really. Obviously, um, once it becomes into the public domain that the company is going to fold, then you create widespread panic, um, within the passengers and of course it becomes a fake to complete no one is going to step in at the last moment and make an offer it's a self-fulfilling prophecy so it has to be kept quiet um, in the very last few hours um, we became very aware that there were about nine aircraft leaving Qatar for UK bases for Monarch Airlines so it became very apparent that the CAA had put into place their rescue program and various other airline aircraft were being positioned into the UK. And there was just a feeling um, that I had. I did uh, Leeds-Bradford to Barcelona and then back to Leeds. Um, the weather on the final night at Leeds was forecast to be truly awful. So I phoned uh, the operations supervisor uh, from Barcelona to discuss what we were going to do if the weather was unsuitable at Leeds. The logical alternative was to go to Amsterdam. And bearing in mind that I'd been for, with the airline for 17 years and it was a small airline, so we knew everybody in, in ops and crewing, um, met them face to face. They weren't just anonymous people and we weren't just numbers. And we had a very I don't know, almost coded conversation um, where she said to me, Al, I really want you to take the aeroplane into Leeds. Um, and I kind of took that, that I knew that if we diverted to Amsterdam, we were going to have to make our own way back from Amsterdam because once the aircraft had landed that night, there was going to be no more airline. And then we also started to get information that during boarding, uh, the Manchester Ibiza flight was cancelled. Now, as you know, once you've started boarding passengers, it's exceptionally unusual to cancel a flight. And at the same time, all the fares on the website just changed to ridiculous amounts to 
deter people from buying tickets. It was a, a damage limitation exercise by the CAA. And um, I remember flying into Leeds with a, quite a considerable amount of fuel. The conditions were truly awful. Um, and then landing and not really knowing if that was going to be my last landing. Having a feeling it probably was. Um, and taxiing the aeroplane um, it's always pretty much remote parking at Leeds so other aircraft had been remote parked which was a very big clue to other crews um, and of course there was effectively a, a communication silence you're not going to advise a crew in mid-flight that they're going to be out of a job the following day that's that's not going to happen um, so when I landed we taxied the aeroplane in disembarked the passengers as normal our engineer got on board and I said to Rowley, who is a good friend, what do you know? And he said, I don't know anything. And I said, I think this will be our final conversation. So he said, well, it's kind of looking that way, isn't it? So I said, yeah. So I got the crew together and um, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I thanked them for their hard work and suggested that if we see each other again tomorrow, it might be different circumstances. But let's keep our fingers crossed. and. Um, I kind of loosely suggested to them that if they wanted to take a few mementos off the aircraft, then I wasn't looking. It must have been quite an emotional goodbye. It was because it was kind of like 75% knowing that that's it and 25% hoping it isn't and that you've not done this, you know, sort of semi-rousing speech that's everyone's looking at you, but we all kind of knew. And indeed, in the early hours of the following morning, we all received an email from the CEO saying that the airline had ceased trading. That must have been a gut-wrenching moment. It is. Um, the best analogy I can give, and I apologise in advance if it's slightly obtuse, but it's like walking in and finding your wife in bed with a stranger. It's You kind of... You're reading it or seeing it, but you're not really believing it. Even though, and I know that from the outside world, people go, well, you must have known, you must have known. But you always had that little bit of hope that it wasn't true. Well, so many airlines have been to the brink and then recovered, yeah. been rescued. Uh, it was quite likely that someone might have been found, so I can understand that. Having had that dreadful news, the realisation, did it hit home? Well... Uh, we were effectively summoned by the administrators, KPMG, to attend meetings that morning. You know, bring your company iPad, your IDs, um, etc. Return all company property. It was um, all very clinical. Um, and I'd been operating out of Leeds, but I was kind of torn, really, because I wanted to just go home and explain to my wife and son that Daddy didn't have a job anymore. Not the easiest conversation, but um, it was better that they heard it from me and not from someone else. Oh, absolutely. And then it was a case of just going to this meeting. And it was like going to a funeral, really. Um, so many people had been there for a lot longer than I. And there was no doubt that it would change everybody's life in that room. Um, for the pilot community, because of the timings, we were reasonably convinced that we would get jobs elsewhere. Of course, they weren't going to be the same, not necessarily in the same seat, same pay, 
same base, you know, complete upheaval of life. For many of the cabin crew, Monica had been a very good supporter of cabin crew and uh, made provisions for, you know, maternity, having children, flexible working, um, because it invested in its people. Uh, and these cabin crew knew that, that going to a new airline and starting afresh, it wasn't going to be like that. So they were faced with a stark realisation that they were going to probably leave aviation. And you know as well as I do, Nick, that it's very unusual, even after the heaviest of parties, to see cabin crew, you know, devoid of makeup, looking pretty unkempt, but many of them had literally come from their beds, you know, no makeup or washed away with tears, um, just stood there in a complete state of, you know, shock, disbelief and extreme distress. And, uh, you know, there were many, many people crying. Um, guys, girls, pilots, cabin crew, there was no, um, there was no differentiation really and we were just subjected to a very clinical speech by an accountant saying just to let you know that you don't have a job and um, that, you know, there will be compensationary payments from the government but don't expect them anytime soon and no, you won't get paid anything that you're owed. So for some people they were completely out of pocket had no way of paying the mortgage of that Absolutely. month or, or their food bills. Yeah. And the world had just dropped out from under them. You know, we all put a little bit of money away for a rainy day, but um, when you suddenly go from, you know, having a reasonable income each month um, and having nothing, that, that rainy day money whittles away very quickly. And of course, being the sort of airline that it was, there were many couples who both parties work for the airline so you know a double whammy oh wow i hadn't really thought about that yeah um, so i mean i guess the statement was quite short but what did people do afterwards um it was just like a funeral people just sort of milled around hugged each other um then the brutal reality of life kicked in because people had obviously driven to the airport um, the meeting at manchester was uh, in a hotel and when people went to leave the hotel said well you need to pay for the car park you know that's 12 pounds you know there you are you've you've lost a job but you know business is business yeah all the sort of things that you used to have that were taken for granted yeah. everything disappears yeah we also obviously had uh, various staff members who were away on on holiday or vacation um, and quite a number of them had uh, used staff travel, non-RAV travel. So uh, one of my responsibilities uh, was looking after that for the pilot union. So I ended up phoning up various airlines and saying, look, we understand that Monarch Airlines is no longer in operation, so therefore the staff travel agreement that we have is null and void. But could you kindly consider allowing our guys to come back? How were the other airlines? How did they react? As you might expect, um, the airlines that we had close relationships with, so I'll give you an example, uh, Virgin Atlantic were absolutely brilliant. It was just a simple yes. Dealing with some of the Middle Eastern airlines where you're trying to work your way through to the right person who actually has the authority to make the decision was somewhat more difficult. But we did get everybody back. And the passengers, of course, uh, the Civil Aviation Authority had aircraft in place and they did a pretty good job of uh, 
uh, quite a large repatriation yeah, of the passengers. Yeah, the largest repatriation of people since the Second World War. Yeah, the only, uh, the only criticism I would have of the CAA was perhaps they crowed about it a bit too much. It was like it was a real achievement of feather in their cap when forgetting the fact that the whole reason it was happening was because an airline had gone bust and thousands of people had lost their jobs. Absolutely. Um, I think that um, it wasn't their finest hour from that point. Um, they saw it as a as a huge success, and um, I don't think that anybody um, should uh, adopt that sort of approach under those circumstances. Um, you know, in sport, um, we're always very magnanimous in victory, and we always shake the hands of the the losing team, and we, you know, we don't gloat in their faces. And I think you're absolutely right in your comment about that. So it's a year on down the road now. Have the wounds started to heal? I think that most people have moved on, but as you may have detected in my voice, there's still emotion. And there always will be, I think. It's, it's very difficult, and I, I find it difficult to quantify to people on the outside, but it is a bit like losing a family member. And yes, as time goes on, you know, it gets easier to talk about, but um, you know, you always still remember that person, that airline in my case. And for some people listening to this, I think, well, it was just a job. Yeah, um, and I can understand that viewpoint, but for me it wasn't. And I think for a lot of us who have a degree of uh, affinity to our employers, and you know, we're being through thick and thin, um, you don't just see it just as a job. No, we, we invest a lot in our airlines uh, and we get a lot back, but uh, we don't just pitch up to work and do the same job as anyone else. Sometimes we go way above and beyond what is really required and we often get the same back. So yes. I can understand it's much more of a, uh, a relationship than it is just a work job. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Now, I, I just wanted to finish off by asking you how things have gone since. I, I gather um, you're working and um, things are on the up. How, how has it turned out for you? Um, I have to be honest, if there was ever a time for an airline to go bust, um, it was October last year because the pilot market is so buoyant. So fortunately for me and my colleagues, we've been able to gain employment elsewhere. So I was lucky to carry on flying the same aircraft type in the same seat. Now, for me, it's not a case of um, the prestige of being captain. It's more a financial aspect. Captains get paid more, so it was important for me um, to stay in the higher-paying seat, crude as that may seem. Um, but, you know, we have bills to pay, um, retirements to pay for in advance. Um, so things have been good for me, and uh, regular listeners to the show will uh, know that I work for a short-haul uh, European airline and um, I have absolutely no complaints. Um, they're a great airline to work for. Would I still like to be at Monarch Airlines? For sure. Um, but where I am now is a great alternative. I won't say second best, that's grossly unfair to my current employers, um, but they're a great alternative and they've looked after me very well as they have done for many of my colleagues. And the same could be said for a lot of other airlines. Of course, um, they were fortunate because they were inheriting some very well-trained and extremely experienced guys uh, but also some airlines bent over backwards to give our guys jobs which me and everyone else is extremely grateful for. 
many of the cabin crew found that life outside aviation is a lot tougher than they thought it was. Any final thoughts looking back on your life with Monarch and on how it all ended? I think probably I could sum it up with they were the best days of my flying life. Enormous thanks go to Captain Alpha telling that story. And my apologies again for the audio, not quite up to our usual standards. Uh, wow, what a sad, bittersweet, I guess. Uh, Absolutely. I, I mean, it turned out okay for Al, but of course, uh, like a lot of the pilots, he took a financial hit when the uh, airline fell out from under him. Everyone was left with money owed, and uh, of course, there was the pension debacle uh, that had already occurred. Um, so, you know, it was it was hard work for him. But I, I, uh, I, you know, you'd see his the emotion in his face and hear it in his voice during the interview didn't come across quite so well with the audio but uh, you can tell he loved that airline i mean he really did and uh, it was a huge blow to him when uh, when they went under yeah mm -hmm. and as sad as i was for him i knew knowing al personally i knew that he was gonna make it through this with without a problem it was just a a speed bump you know, in his career. I, I don't think I could say the same thing probably for many of the other employees, but knowing Al, um, I knew that he would, he would, uh, land on his feet. And, uh, but again, it's still tough when you, when you lose an, uh, an airline that you loved so much, it was, it's like uh, a relationship coming to an end. Oh, absolutely. And of course, our airline has uh, benefited uh, because we picked up, uh, I think we probably picked up some slots. We, uh, But more importantly, we picked up a, a, quite a handful of uh, very good pilots, uh, some of whom I've had the pleasure of flying with. So, uh, um, you know, uh, delighted to have them uh, with my outfit. Um, they're turning out to be um, you know, well above uh, the average, um, you know, a real cup up here above the very well trained very good and uh, a real asset to our airline now and i'll just say you know it's not a surprise for us knowing al personally but i know he did a lot of work to help others land on their feet as well so kudos to to him for doing all of that yeah he's a good man good pilot and a great man likes to eat and drink and drink <laughs> chicken nuggets <laughs> All right. And he's free, he's free with his bodily gases. <laughs> yes, he's very free with so many things, including that. Okay. <laughs> with that, let's move on to item six. Pilot error blamed for Essendon DFO plane crash that left five people dead. And you'll remember back in February 2017, a Beechcraft B-200 Super King Air plane crashed into the DFO shopping center at Essendon. And this was in uh, Australia. And Matt sent this in. I should acknowledge Matt living in that area of the world. Thank you, Matt. Um, the final report uh, has been released uh, by the Australian Transportation Safety Board, the ATSB. And the key points, the report found the aircraft's rudder trim was left in the wrong position, 
causing the plane to turn sharply to the left. It was all the way displaced, full left rudder trim. The ATSB boss, Greg Hood, said the crash could have been prevented if the pilot had used a checklist prior to takeoff. And the pilot and four American tourists died when the Super King Air crashed shortly after takeoff. And uh, the the report will be included uh, in the show notes or a link to it, uh, the full PDF um, document. And I read through it and was trying to figure out, okay, and they, there's also, if uh, you look at the article, which will, the link will be included, uh, there's a uh, recreation video showing what uh, they think happened, uh, the path of the aircraft, et cetera. It looks like it takes off, and then it just starts yawing to the left very considerably, and hardly any bank at all. Uh, noted maybe uh, possibly up to 10 degrees to the left um, and they think that because the rudder trim was fully displaced to the left uh, and was not noticed by uh, Mr. Uh, Quartermain uh, that uh, he was probably at first distracted as as he was going down the runway it was starting to pull to the left and then when he rotated it pulled to the left much more significantly because now he doesn't have the nose wheel on the runway to counteract some of that side force and they're thinking that perhaps and he delayed the rotation a little bit longer than normal and they're thinking because there there was a a voice recorder by the way except that the uh, it was not on and so they don't they don't have the benefit to hear what was happening inside of the aircraft. And I don't believe any kind of flight data recorder was required uh, for this category of aircraft in Australia. But uh, they're thinking that he probably was thinking there must be asymmetric thrust. I think many of us pilots flying a twin engine airplane would, if we if we saw the airplane trying to yaw like that, the first thing that we'd probably think of is oh, you know, there's some kind of an engine. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, power asymmetry, uh, but there wasn't. And so when he looks at everything and goes, well, everything seems to be operating uh, fine. Why is the airplane? And I'm sure he was trying to counter this left motion by putting in right rudder. But apparently when the King Air, Super King Air's rudder trim is all the way to the left or, or right, that rudder alone cannot completely counteract that asymmetric yaw and uh, so you compound that with the fact that you're blanking out um, the the rudder itself because it's yawing and uh, the airflow is um, you're picking up a lot of form drag because the thing is not flying straight it's flying almost sideways and so your performance is deteriorating and uh, the the whole thing was just uh, you know quickly uh, just snowballing on the pilot and probably still trying to figure out why the airplane wasn't flying correctly. He did uh, send out a mayday, I think seven times. He said mayday, mayday, mayday. Um, There's a a little um, excerpt that uh, I took from the final report that um, I'd like to read. And basically I just talked about it, but let me read it if you don't mind. It was possible that the pilot expected, either through training or previous experience, that the most likely reason for a yaw on the takeoff roll was due to asymmetric 
engine power rather than a misset trim. This would not have been reflected on the cockpit instruments, however, as the engines were likely to have been operating normally. This conflicting information could have confused or distracted the pilot, resulting in a delay in rotating while troubleshooting. Diagnosing an unknown issue during a critical phase of flight would have been challenging. As the aircraft approached 111 knots, uh, the pilot may have considered that there was insufficient runway remaining to safely reject the takeoff without the risk of a runway overrun. There was insufficient evidence to determine why the pilot delayed the rotation from 94 knots to 111 or why the takeoff was not rejected. This accident highlights the decision-making challenges during critical phases of, or stages of flight, especially when faced with a novel or unusual problem. After takeoff, it was likely that the pilot was applying right rudder pedal in an attempt to compensate for the yaw induced by a misset rudder trim. The misset trim would have had a stronger influence on the aircraft's heading once airborne due to the loss of directional control provided by the nose wheel steering. While the ATSB was unable to quantify the rudder pedal forces required to overcome the misset rudder trim, when tested in a B-250 Class D simulator, the forces could only be countered by the pilot for a short period of time. The pilot who flew the simulator commented that he was able to offset the rudder force until his leg gave out. This happened on three consecutive attempts. Given the simulator results, once the pilot of Zulu Charlie Romeo was no longer able to counteract the rudder forces, the yaw resulting from the misset trim likely had a significant effect on the aircraft's climb performance and controllability. The ATSB's analysis of the ADSB data and the closed-circuit TV footage found a clear correlation between yawing and a reduction in performance. Uh, Zulu Charlie Romeo's performance degraded to the point at which control could not be been, uh, maintained, and the aircraft subsequently collided with the outlet center. Again, uh, the whole article and the full ATSB report will be in the show notes. Sounds like it was uh, a tough job to keep it straight. I mean, uh, he didn't have long to fault find. Um, the aircraft uh, went out of control pretty quickly. Um, and it, I'm just, I'm just so saddened by the uh, comment in the preliminary, which said um, he had uh, five opportunities to pick up the error. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Five times he went through his checks and uh, could have spotted this particular problem, the fact that he had a misset. So, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but uh, when you're doing the same job over and over and over again and you feel you no longer need to rely on the checklist, uh, that's what, we, what, you know, this is what can come back and bite you. Uh, if you move away from your training and think, well, I've got this one tagged, I don't really need to look at this anymore. I've done it so many times. That's a dangerous situation to get into. It is. And there's really no discussion or speculation as to why the the rudder trim was set full left. I mean, did somebody do that on purpose or was yeah, it an accidental? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of too many situations where you would actually do that. You know, no, unless it was an engineering that, requirement to yeah. exercise the rudder trim to check it was, uh, you know, operating to full deflection or something, mm -hmm. and they hadn't bothered to put it back in the middle. I have to say, when I see an aircraft coming out of the hangar and onto the line, if I'm the next bloke to fly it, I'm always doubly <laughs> careful when I look around the cockpit because I find some things in some very unusual positions. Yes, you do. It's almost as if they're 
purposely trying to put everything <laughs> in, the, in the wrong position. Not sabotage, but it's just, yeah, we always make the same comment uh, that if it's out of the hangar, okay, just make sure everything really is in the correct position. Right, yep. Yep. That makes sense. You know, if you have to check the, the full range of everything, then. Yeah. And you go, well, why, why would they put yeah. that switch in that position? That makes no sense whatsoever. You know, it's just like, okay. Anyway, um, thanks, Matt, for sending in the uh, final report on that uh, tragedy. Fabian, our friend Fabian from Deutschland, um, who is a, a new airline pilot. Yay. Congratulations, mm-hmm. Matt. Um, sent us some feedback, some audio feedback. He says, attached, you'll find some feedback. It's three files, but men is one. And uh, so we'll play them in succession. And he said, it'd be great if you could play the feedback soon due to the possibility of meetups. Thanks for all the great work. And uh, we're happy to play all three, Fabian. So let's start with the first one. Here we go. Hi there, Dr. Steph, Captains Nick, Jeff, and Dana, anyone who might be co-hosting, and you, the listeners. It's F.O. Fabian here from Germany. It's been a long time since my last feedback. In the meantime, I got hired by Acme Stadt. Finished my typewriting on the Dash 8 Q400, completed line training and my line check mid-September. Now I'm a regular low-time FO on the line. While supervision went quite smoothly from an operations standpoint, my first two and a half weeks on the line after the check have been quite interesting. I transported an VIP, his wife and his federal police escort, had to def- Defuel a plane, had my FMS fail on me one database at a time until it was unable to produce any information to the screen. Good thing we got two of them. Uh, Had a temporary comms failure and a ferry flight due to uh, another aircraft being AOG at another base. Flying the Dash 8 empty is quite fun, I must say. Next to these bits and be, uh, uh, bits and bobs, uh, I got to see stuff every pilot gets to see on a regular basis, but uh, the normal public doesn't. I've, but that's just uh, why we got the job, isn't it? In episode two, 340, you talked about defueling, and ni- as neither of you ever had to defuel, um, and I had it happen just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was going to talk about it a little bit. It was a four-sector day, um, all within Germany, all domestic flights. The third and fourth leg was supposed to go to a German island popular with retired people for vacation. Um, Both flights were fully booked, and as fuel is quite expensive on the island, we considered taking enough fuel for the return trip. Our OFP, OFP means Operational Flight Plan, tells us we gain 300 US dollars for every ton of fuel we carry extra to the island for the return trip. During our second leg, we decided how much fuel we needed for and confirmed with the the estimated zero fuel weight on the OFP uh, for the next flight. The estimated Zero fuel weight plus our desired takeoff fuel puts us 700 kilo or 1,540 pound below our maximum takeoff weight. 
we would have been limited by the max landing mass um, later when for the landing but uh, 700 kilos below we would have been 700 kilos below the max takeoff weight at that point uh, while still during the flight we ordered the fuel via acres and later during the turnaround the tanker had already finished and left by the time the ramp agent gave us the final passenger and baggage numbers uh, we won the numbers on our electronic flight bag and then we noticed we were over the max takeoff weight by around 400 kilos and even further over the max landing weight 400 kilos is around 880 pounds Seemingly, the company had calculated the average baggage numbers for all destinations and not taking into account that retired folks going to a pure vacation destination would be more likely to take the allowed baggage. Our zero fuel rate was 1,000 kilos or 2,200 pounds over the estimated of the OFP, which we only had... While we only had 1,200 kilos of bags, 2,650 pounds. As the passenger buses had already arrived, we decided it was best to defuel and not unload the bags in front of the passengers. The dash doesn't have any pumps which would have helped the tanker to defuel the aircraft, so defueling 700 kilos took around 70 minutes. In the beginning, the passengers were quite happy when the captain told them we had to take a delay to get all their bags to the holiday destination. This faded with the waiting time. Once in the air, we were offered a direct to the destination, which we couldn't accept because we would have arrived heavier than our max landing weight. After half the flight, we decided to descend to the lowest level ATC could offer us to burn some more fuel. In the end, we arrived at our destination just below our max landing weight. So that's my story on defueling avoid it if possible it's a pain in the air <laughs> okay um yeah that does not sound like a lot of fun fabian and uh, i thought it was a cute comment that he made regarding the passengers were okay with it at first but after a while of after waiting for a while they thought hmm this is not great should have just left the bags yeah <laughs> they'll show up eventually right I'll okay. just leave, uh, leave some of the pilots behind. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's the future, man. Another option. <laughs> All right. Uh, Fabian, part two. With the San Francisco Air Canada incident report came up a discussion about NOTAMs. To give listeners some perspective of the mass of NOTAMs we get, here's a short look through the NOTAMs for my 50-minute domestic German flight. The NOTAM list starts on page 8 of the OFP and ends on page 27. It starts departure airport approach procedure. Some ILS information. Then more ILS information with reference to the AIP. In the AIP we get our charts and general airport information. Next, ILS of one one-way downgraded to cut one. Okay, that's good information. The next following is airport information. D-Vortag and D-VOR, D-Vortag is a military VOR, are out of service. Good information too. Crane in departure sector not marked or light, lit. No performance relevant. Why give it then? Half of the page 
of no terms telling me about construction on the apron. If I look on the temporary ground chart, I see exactly that. Another non-performance relevant crane. More or less info on a different one way. Why is that not listed with the other no term in the approach section? Destination airport. General info due to outage of three NAF aids. Changes to standard approach expected vectors half page in length. Approach. Raised minimums for two approaches due to crane or buildings. Good information. Another NAF aid with problems results in changes of approaches. NDB approach for one one-way suspended. ILS localizer on another one-way out of service. ILS glide slope, same one-way, out of service. ILS, same one-way, out of service. Good info, but why three notams instead of one? Why the different wording for approaches I can't use? Uh, I see a room for improvement here. Next is airport information. I call it one full page of crap. It starts out, out multiple taxiways closed, also available on a temporary ground chart. Each, is it each taxiway is a different notam. Two taxiways not available for category Echo of Foxtrot aircraft. The company doesn't operate aircraft in this category. Why do I see the notam? Every nav rate that is out, which I know because it was listed in the general information notam, gets its own notam here. Two more gray notams. One doesn't affect performance, the other one does. And it's corrected for in the current version of the performance tool. Only good information on this page. Next page, more information on change departure routes due to our NAV aids out of service. For information, all these changes only affect us if both our FMS would be failed, because then we would have to fly them conventionally, and since we wouldn't be allowed to fly them, those NOTAMs doesn't, don't affect us. At least not um, before the flight. Next, call airport for permission to land if you are not a scheduled operation. But we are a scheduled operation, so why do I see this then? More cranes out of service. Uh, more cranes with no performance impact. Another NAV aid out of service. More standard instrument departure route changes with reference to ARP, which is in our charts. Alternate number one: G bus out of service. Waste minima for a couple of approaches. NDB out. DME doesn't work in this area. Crane no performance impact. That's all for alternate one. Short and precise and except one all relevant information. Oh, except our all of our aircraft don't have Jeepers. So, why do I see this? Still, just half a page and on point. Alternate two is a mess again. 2.5 pages. Construction details, which I can see published on the temporary ground chart again. Oh, the ILS is out of service for both ends of the runway. So is the NDB. That's odd. Back to the half-page construction notam. Taxiways closed between there, here and there. One way will be closed during this time. Oh, that's odd. More taxiway closers. Ah, there's the reference, the relevant info I need. Why is it hidden in half-a-page notam? Next, the notams for approach. Half a page of changes on approaches to the closed runway. Yeah, that's gonna be super helpful. Please take the note I'm out while the runway is closed. And please don't hide the runway closure info between construction notams between taxiway closures. 10 lines or more with minimum changes for approaches 
are quite messy to look through why not public publish it in the AIP as changes. Then follow for more alternates with some good info and some not so relevant information, which leads you to page 10 of 20 of the NOTAMs. This is followed by pages worth of NOTAMs for FIRs, flight information readers. We don't even touch, even if we go to all our alternates for this flight, like the Amsterdam FIR with this NOTAM. Dutch Mill Guard 243.000 MHz expect limited coverage in northwestern part of FIR. This is an HF frequency. We don't have HF radio on our airplanes. We are not going anywhere near the Netherlands on this flight. Why do I see this NOTAM? Next, NWOOD NOTAMs. Of course, all the NAV aids you use for approaches, you could use for NWOOD navigation. So, the full list of out-of-service NAV aids, half of which you have already mentioned with the airports. So, I would them double, as usual. I guess you get the idea of what these NOTAMs look like. And remember, all these NOTAMs are in capital letters. The station copy says, I hereby acknowledge receipt of the foregoing flight plan inclusive weather reports and NOTAMs. I consider all factors suitable for flight. Signed, the commander. The commander basically signs, he has read and knows all the NOTAMs before the flight. Overall, I think the system of NOTAMs needs improvement and there's plenty room to improve the system. But with modern technology, I hope we get there with the new results of the NTSB investigation into the Air Canada flight. That's what NOTAMs are. They're just a bunch of garbage that nobody pays any attention to. On a lighter note than NOTAMs, I will be in the US from October 6th till the 20th. First in DC from the 6th till the 10th and later in New York City from the 14th to the 19th. I would like to meet any of you community members in the area. Halal, Craig, I and possibly Rebecca are looking at a meetup in Baltimore as Fleet Week is happening there. We haven't decided on a date yet, but check Slack for that. If you're in the area and would like to meet up, send me a message on Slack. Halal will tell you all about Slack at the end of the show. Thanks again for the great show, guys. It was a pleasure meeting you, all of you, in Farnborough this year. Always happy landings. Always great to see you as well, Fabian. And uh, <laughs> that that middle piece of audio with the NOTAMs, uh, you see what we have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the head of the NTSB. Yeah, Robert yep. Zomalt. That's definitely going to be in my uh, folder of uh, Yeah, I'm going to send him a Christmas card. I like it. <laughs> I love it. I love the hopefully when he said, there's change coming. Why is there a birds in the vicinity? Every airport has birds in the vicinity. I know, yeah. every airport. <laughs> Are these people who write these things just short of things to say, you know? They're just sitting there in the office dreaming up another one. I, I, it just drives me burlesque. Yeah, it's, uh, it's inferior. I mean, uh, it, uh, Fabian's got enough problems with 25, but uh, on, a, on a, the average East Coast to the America flight, uh, 85 double-sided pages uh, of tiny point, whatever, six print, you know, the, the minuscule print, all in capitals, just solid print, uh, front and back, 85 pages, and you can look at it and you go, well, this is, I've got 20 minutes to look at all of my paperwork. How the hell am I going to get through this long? And it's not even like they can prioritize, like, the important stuff first and, like, 
you know, 400 cranes nearby. Yeah. Well, I mean, the company sort of tries to put some effort into filtering, but the, you know, the filters, you have to be really careful in case Mm -hmm. they exclude something. You have to have the NEDAS properly categorized so that you know what part of the flight they affect. And uh, if that's not done, and there's no real system for categorizing the NOTAMs accurately, and certainly if there was one, the operators, whoever's putting them out, isn't using it properly. So it's very, uh, I mean, it sounds like he's got his in the sort of approach and landing and taxing phase mine are just randomly scattered around the page so i haven't got a clue most of the time it's too bad they don't have an organized that way because then you'd have that seven hour flight to uh, <laughs> to, to review all the ones that are appropriate for your in route approach and landing oh that exactly right except because that's when you find out that you should have put on three tons of fuel to cope with the problem that oh, you're going to yeah. get because it was no time so you really got to <laughs> do them all before you get able so true so true but we got to make sure that everybody's arse is covered, don't we? Oh, I've, everyone except the captains. Yes. Yeah, we're always <laughs> hanging the, it out there, This is we? the one that's hanging out of the window in the airstream. Yep. Okay, well, Fabian, oh, and also just uh, keep in mind that he said that he's going to be uh, traveling here in the U.S. I forget ex- the exact dates, the 6th through 20th. I think he's going to be in, I think he said New York for some of that time and also in the Washington, Baltimore area, is that yes. right? Okay. Something, something what like was that. His, what was his New York dates again? The sixth through the something. No, it was the first part of it. I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. I don't either. But I'll I think. Um, it. <laughs> yeah, and I think he has information on Slack. Yeah, I'll look in Slack. Yeah. Well, Fabian, look up um, my schedule on airlinepilotguy.com and see if I'm going to be in any of those places. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks again, Fabian. We always appreciate hearing from you and we like your sense of humor. I do at least. <laughs> uh, Liz, our producer sent in this piece of feedback. Number nine, uh, also has to do with the FAA, uh, reauthorization bill, uh, HS 302, I believe, uh, lawmakers paved the way for the return of supersonic flight. And uh, let's see, among the various changes included, uh, they, um, lawmakers have agreed to pave the way for the return of supersonic flight. And uh, let's see, it says that 24th of October 2003 was the last supersonic passenger service by British Airways on the Concorde. Um, they, this article talks about sonic booms. We all know what those are. For those listening yeah, to this show, but the, the restrictions you put in place to stop us operating Concorde over land mean lot. And now you're going to build your own. You're thinking, oh, we'll just get rid of those restrictions. That's exactly why we did all that. <laughs> um, let's you're see. Rotten. Very, you're rotten. Very, we are, apparently. I didn't realize how bad we were until we got yeah. Captain Nick to be a host on the show. Um, he has no problem telling us, however, no. forming oh. us. Don't kind of it, Nick. Tell it like it is. <laughs> Various firms are gambling on the return of supersonic flight as a viable commercial operation, and American based companies will dominate this and destroy any other country that even thinks about having a supersonic aircraft. Wait a minute, that was not in not in the actual text of this article. I just made that up. Um, Denver based Boom Supersonic is developing a 1,451 mile per hour, 55 seat aircraft that says it could fly from Washington, D.C. to London in three and a half hours. 
Uh, separately, Lockheed Martin has been working with NASA to develop a low-boom flight demonstrator, which would issue a much softer noise than the type emitted by Concorde. Uh, that plane is designed to cruise at 1,081 miles per hour, Mach 1.4, and has been in development since 2016 and is scheduled for delivery to NASA, NASA in late 2021. After that date, NASA will fly the plane over U.S. cities to test for noise. And uh, Japanese and Russian researchers have separately said that they are also looking to develop a low-boom demonstrator. So we shall see if we uh, get any development from these companies. Didn't mention any uh, U.K. or European uh, companies trying to do the same. Maybe they've just given up. They know that we'll just dominate and squash them if they even try. Okay. Like last time. Yeah, exactly. That's our that's our uh, modem operandi or whatever. Is that right? Modus operandi? Modus operandi. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Latin was not something I took in school. <sighs> Noily illegitimate coverandum. <laughs> yep, you're having problems with your carburetor? What, what did you just say? <laughs> Don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> okay, number 10. Gus, hi Jeff, Steph, Dana, Nick, Liz, and everyone else in the community. Since, since you mentioned my story on one of the last episodes that I've heard, I felt I should send some feedback to give you an update on my airplane buying adventure. Yes, you were right on the good side of the 50% accuracy. Woohoo! Hey! Wait, that deserves go, go us. Hang on, let me get my actual bell here. There we go. Uh, it was me, the guy who lives in Argentina and was interviewed by Dispatcher Mike on episode 320 at Sun and Fun, in case anyone wants to go back and listen. To make a quick recap, more than a year ago, me and two friends decided to buy an airplane. A friend in the U.S. offered a 1978 Piper, Piper Aero 3 single-engine constant-speed prop retractable gear. That sounds like a pretty sweet airplane. Mm -hmm. And after some calculations, we decided to go for it, as it was going to be cheaper, not faster, to buy the aircraft in the U.S., dissemble the wings, put it in a shipping container, and ship it to Argentina. And so we did. After the aircraft arrived sometime around November last year, it's been sitting in a hangar at one of our local airports, uh, Sierra Alpha Delta Mike, while waiting for paperwork, more paperwork, waiting for replacement parts, new registration, paint job, assemble, assemblage of the wings, new interior, annual inspection, prop overhaul, more inspections, and finally, more paperwork. That was eight additional months. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Nothing happens quickly in aviation, does it? No. I'm glad to share with you that last month, on August 25th, we were able to finally fly the airplane for the first time in the Southern Hemisphere, and it was awesome. I'm including a link to some pictures and a link to a YouTube video so you can include them in the show notes. Okay, they'll be in the show notes. If anyone from the APG crew or the community is ever around here, please let me know, and I'll be more than glad to take him or her for a ride. I promise to share some of my flying adventures soon. Cheers, Gus from Argentina. Ah, that's awesome. I'm glad he was finally able to take it flying. Absolutely. Sounds brilliant. Me too. All right, moving on. Richard Adams. I, no. Hi, Jeff and crew. I'm sure you remember me mentioning ex-ATA pilot Mary Ellis's exploits before and 
her death at 101 earlier this year? Yeah, we do remember that. A memorial service for Mary was held on the island this Monday, with, as you might expect, a large turnout and some wonderful tributes. Following the service, there was a fly past by three Spitfires, one of which did a wonderful 10-minute sequence of arrows. I think Mary would have approved. I've attached a couple of pictures of the order of service, the back cover of which is an extract of her logbook showing a remarkable mix of aircraft flown. Keep up the great show. It's very much appreciated. Thanks, Richard Adams. And uh, again, uh, an, uh, an example of one of her pages from her logbook. And as he said, uh, just an incredible um, uh, array of different types of aircraft that she flew. Thanks. Brilliant. I'm looking at there are a bunch of Spitfires, a mm -hmm. Fairchild, not quite sure what. She's flew the Oxford a few times. Uh, a Wellington bomber, bomber. Um, and then right at the end, I'm going right, is a swordfish, for heaven's sake. Huh. What's you a know? swordfish? Is that a... That was the, uh, the string bag, the uh, biplane that oh, that's uh, right. the Navy had in the beginning of the war. Um, I mean, what an incredible variety of aircraft, none of which would be easy to fly. No. Wow. Mary was quite something, wasn't she? Absolutely. And, and of course, her compatriots that worked with her are doing that job. Yeah. And and the, the same in the United States, of course. The, a lot of the ladies did yeah. that similar job. I'm, I'm racking my brains to think what uh, their service was called. But. WAC, I think. WAX or something like that? Uh, no. What does that stand for? Is it WASP? Or WASP. Maybe WASP. Micah knows. Come on, help us out, Micah. Um, yeah. Well, Richard... You're awesome, too. Uh, thank you for sending the feedback, and thank you for being part of the Coffee Fun Cadre. We do appreciate that. Yeah, and, and thanks very much. Uh, Richard sent me the book uh, of Mary Ellis's life, um, which uh, I'm slowly working through, and when I'm finished with it, he's asked me to pass it on. So it'll be coming out to you in the APG uh, library. All right, we'll make a uh, – we can, we can uh, trade. I, I can give you your, uh, your, your Yeti thermal mug. mug. <laughs> So, and WASP, WASP stands for Women Air Force Service Pilots. Oh, very good. That was during World War II. A lot of unsung heroes. Oh, very much. Thank so. you, ma'am, ma'am, Micah, Women's Air Service Corps. Yes. All right. Um, Robert sent us, What was it Robert or is it uh, Hamish Tihagas or is it Dick? Dick. Okay. <laughs> he said, uh, some new data regarding the damage risk of drone encounters. And this is from... Ah, let's see, dronedj.com, or dronedj.com, I'm not sure, probably DJ. Um, tests performed at the University of Dayton Research Institute's <coughs> Impact Physics Lab, that sounds like a fun place to hang out, show <laughs> that even the impact of a small drone like a DJI Phantom could have severe consequences. The tests were designed to mimic a mid-air collision at 238 miles per hour. A 2.1-pound DJI Phantom II drone was launched into the wing of a Mooney M20. As you can see in the video below, the drone did not shatter upon impact, but tore open the leading edge of the wing. It entered the wing structure and damaged the main spar, posing a risk to manned aircraft. And uh, we'll put a link to the video and the article in the show notes. I took a little snapshot of um, where... Uh, when the 
drone was just impacting the leading edge and then it ends up basically disappearing into a kind of a gaping hole into the leading edge of that Mooney wing. And then I think it meets up with some other DJI drones and then they have babies and then they it multiply. flies around on the inside of the wing for a while. Yes. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's very scary. Sure, yeah. Interesting footage from those drones <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Or you know what? I was kind of drinking heavily when I was watching it. Perhaps I'm, I'm mistaken. It might not have actually happened that way. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, now, how many states have legalized marijuana uh, over there? Georgia hasn't yet. And, oh. uh, but it doesn't matter uh, it does, because the FAA still uh, frowns upon it. <laughs> illegal on a federal level still. <laughs> as well as my oh. company, Acme. <laughs> my brother was telling me that uh, you can smoke it on one side of the border in Canada and on the other side of the border in Washington. But you've got to go through the federal uh, authorities to get from one border to the other, one side, of, and and that's where you get caught. So even though it's legal on both sides of the border, the federal agents won't allow you to, well, they'll prosecute you if you try and take it from one side to the other. How stupid is that? That's just like uh, going to the Denver International Airport, uh, which you know it's legal in uh, Colorado, but the TSA will take umbrage if you try to go through security with some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Why? And, not my personal experience, trust me, but that's what I read. Because they are representing the federal government and it's illegal. Anyway, thanks, uh, Dick, for <laughs> sending in the uh, <laughs> sending in. It's a term of endearment for those who don't know. Yeah, yeah. we were having trouble uh, <laughs> remembering uh, Roberts. Ro- it's, that's his real name, Robert. We we called him Richard a few times because we like Richard better than Robert, apparently. And yeah. then we decided then we to like Dick better than Richard. come up with some nicknames because, you know, <laughs> Dick is a nickname for Richard yeah. for some reason. I'm not sure. <laughs> but anyway, um, so we, we've decided that Dick is the best name for him. So thank you, sir. Um, and then finally, Liz, our producer, sent in this last piece of feedback. And it is Surfing the Mountain Wave. And this is a project that takes gliding to new heights. Amazing, she says. So in September, the Airbus Perlan 2 glider achieved a new altitude record of 76,000 feet. Uh, let's see. Uh, Bill Reed, the F-R-A-E-S. Fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you. I had no idea what that was. <laughs> no I didn't either. Like phrase? Phrase. Phrase. Yeah. I thought there was some kind of a typo or something there. But, uh, fellow <laughs> of the, the what is it? Royal Aeronautical? Of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Oh, very cool. Uh, he reports on the ongoing project, which not only intends to fly higher than any other manned-winged aircraft, but also to learn new insights in the Earth's atmosphere, the ozone layer, and global warming. Okay, I'm just pausing for a moment here. I'm seeing all these messages flying no, I'm sorry. in my upper right-hand corner. I'm going, is this something, is there something urgent going on that There's I should be aware of? nothing urgent going okay. on. I'm sorry. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, a well-known weather phenomenon used by glider pilots to keep aloft is to surf on mountain waves. 
In the same way as a river forms waves when it flows over a rock, strong winds crossing a mountain range will make it make standing waves in the air. Such waves need particular conditions to be created. If the winds are blowing more than 15 knots sideways over the mountain and the atmosphere is stable, then waves will form on the lee side of the mountains. Anyway, um, this I'm not going to read the whole article. Don't don't you worry. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights here. So this thing made it up to 76,000 feet, which is amazing. And what's even more amazing is that they're planning to take this glider up uh, even higher. Uh, Perlin, Perlin 2 is not your average glider, but is essentially a spacecraft with an 84-foot wingspan. Unlike some gliders, Perlin 2 is not built for speed, but for climbing. The glider is optimized for high altitudes, which means that the aircraft will not perform as well as a typical sailplane with a similar wingspan at low altitudes. One of the 2018 flights was to test the performance of the glider at the higher speeds that would be needed to keep it aloft at heights above 90,000 feet. Despite having no engine, the glider's true flight speed in the strong winds encountered in the stratosphere could exceed 400 miles an hour. Windward Performance designed the aircraft to be flutter safe at very high speeds and also to be strong enough to cope with potentially heavy turbulence that could be encountered at 90,000 feet. Huh. That's interesting. I know that the stratosphere, which what is a, uh, just above the troposphere, which usually generally is what about uh, upper 40s, 50,000 to about 80,000 or something like that. I'm not... Yeah, it varies from it's high around the uh, uh equatorial region and lower around the polar yeah, region. In the stratosphere, the winds are like really, really light. It's like very stable air in that yeah. in that particular layer. But I guess above that, it must be heavily turbulent uh, again. Well, I think these waves uh, break through basically and, oh. uh, and exist above the trop where we would normally expect the winds to be. But I'm I'm not an expert in uh, in high level meteorology, so I'm just going to sh shut up there. But all we yeah. know is they exist up there. But you've got to be in a, a very specific part of the world in the sort of subpolar region, and you've got to be close to amazing mountain ranges like the Andes, uh, or whatever they're near. If that is the Andes, then bong above fifty percent. But I'm only guessing on that. That's how yeah, so they were down in Patagonia. The Patagonian mountains, then the Patagonian Andes. Well, that's part of the Andes, um, right? Yes. Okay. Southern oh, good. The Andes. Oh, hey. correct. Yay! Dave, but, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang there good you go. Guess there. What amazes me, though, is really is the high Mach number and the high um, TAS that they're going to fly this glider at. Uh, and when the guy talks about uh, the wing being able to withstand the flutter, um, I don't think people quite appreciate um, how much twist and, and torque there is on a on a high aspect ratio wing like a glider has. High aspect ratio in a very very wide wingspan, very narrow wings make them very efficient. Um, because when the wing flexes up and down, if it twists at all, it must twist in a safe direction that effectively reduces the angle of attack on the wing so that the wing just bends back down to its normal position because if it twists in slightly in the opposite direction then that bend is exaggerated and uh, you end up in a situation where the wing will just beat itself to death uh, and you don't want that to happen at 90,000 feet when you're basically bolted into a pressurized cabin i don't know what the facilities they have for climbing out of this thing if they uh, have a structural problem and need to jump out but it does not look 
Um, the easiest thing to uh, get out of, particularly if you're trying to then do it with a parachute. I mean, they're effectively wearing spacesuits space inside this thing. I'm, I'm incredibly impressed uh, with their, you know, bravery in doing this. It's, it's really, you know, groundbreaking stuff. Yes. Um, it says that the aircraft must be able to fly in air less than 3% of normal density and temperatures of minus 70 degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's not very That's cold. That's similar to those uh, conditions of Mars. Instead of using pressurized suits, as in Perlin 1, the two pilots will be inside a pressurized cabin with much smaller windows than on a conventional glider. The carbon fiber sandwich construction of the aircraft will provide good insulation against the cold, but there will be enough capacity in the battery for the pilots to plug in electric heated clothing. The cabin is fitted with air recycling systems and other life support systems similar to those used on aircraft, uh, spacecraft. The crew will breathe pure oxygen provided by a rebreather system similar to those used in scuba gear. Two parachutes will also be carried in case an emergency descent is needed. Wow. I mean, as uh, somebody in the chat room said, everything about this project is just amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I'm delighted that Airbus have taken the time and trouble to allow their engineering facilities and uh, to sponsor this because, uh, you know, it's a fantastic concept. Um, I, I'm When they say emergency descent, uh, I'm going to go, well, that is just weird because how you descend one of these things fast when you're probably very close to your maximum Mach limit and very close to your maximum airspeed uh, and you're trying to get this thing down, there's very, it must be incredibly hard to mm -hmm. descend it fast. So mm -hmm. if you do depressurize, I just wonder how they're going to cope with um, you know, or pressure breathing. Uh, for any length of time because they need a reasonable supply of oxygen for that and more importantly getting the bends uh, decompression sickness that is quite likely to occur because it's going to take them some time to get back down to anywhere near normal uh, atmospheric pressure it looks like they're they're shooting for getting up to 100,000 feet, which is yeah, just amazing. You just wonder what the time of useful consciousness is at 100,000 feet if you depressurize. Half a second. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nil. I mean, oh, my God. Well, I was just thinking um, the um, title for this episode might be Boeing Bad Airbus Good. Would that be a good one, uh, Nick? Uh, well, I think I would guess well above the 50%. <laughs> I'm going to have to vote against it. I'm yeah, I, I'm not. Don't worry. I'm yeah, not it's a bit partisan, don't you think? <laughs> Despite the fact that it's true, we, I think <laughs> oh, we, we don't want to upset the listeners. Come on. Oh, man. Let them, dream, let them dream on a little longer. I'll just, don't worry, Steph. I'll censor out everything that he says <laughs> in the show. <laughs> everything? Yeah. Well. A pretty most. short show, then. <laughs> true. No, he's just not going to censor it out. He's just going to go, meep. So yeah, just meep, meep, meep. The time will still <laughs> All right. Believe it or not, uh, we were not to, um, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word. Verbose. Anyway. No, we were, um, we didn't expect we were... too much. Oh. We were, whatever. We uh, didn't have a whole load of stuff in our we were feedback folder. We got feedback. through everything. We got we got through everything, and uh, mm -hmm. and we're under three hours, which is just amazing. Ambitious. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> she got it. Good she, job, Liz. She knows what I'm thinking, which is pretty scary. Okay, um, so that is it for this episode 342, and uh, 
Uh, oh, you know, I was going to mention something quickly before we end the show. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I like to watch auto racing. I keep track of it in uh, another great race this morning in uh, Sochi, Russia, and another win for uh, Hamilton and the Mercedes uh, Silver Arrows. Birthday. I think it's uh, Max was... uh, Verstappen's birthday. I think he's 21 years old today. Oh, really? Oh, I yeah. assumed it was Hamilton's because he was gifted the win. Oh, I see. Yeah, the yeah. uh, Botas and uh, Hamilton yeah. and the team thing. Yeah, it's, I'll be interested to see, yeah. uh, you know, if we get any uh, clues as to the, the discussion and reasoning behind the decision. Anyway, oh. just quickly, uh, I used to be a big, fan of NAS- a big fan of NASCAR, and I still am, sort of. Not maybe a big fan, but uh, I, I still kind of keep track of it a little bit. And today, right now, in fact... I don't know if the race is over yet. Uh, Probably close to uh, Steph, but yep. near Steph yep. in Charlotte, they're Concord. doing something really interesting because one of the things that people give NASCAR a bad time about is the fact that most of their races, 99% of them, I think, are on just ovals. They're just turning left the whole race. Well, they decided to do something different at Charlotte today, and they're, they're, they renamed it, renamed it a, uh, a roval, I think for a road course and an oval track combined. So uh, at some point in this oval, they end up bringing the track inside as a road course, and then it rejoins the oval. And they put a, uh, just for good measure, put a couple of chicanes in the uh, the oval part of the track. Do they have and a crossroads in the middle? No, but that would be fun, wouldn't it? That would be great fun. Oh gosh, like a demolition better. derby. Yeah. Well, I, was, I, did, I did happen to see, I think it was during uh, Plain Tales, I was catching up on social media a little bit too, and a friend of mine who was there uh, was sitting near the road course part of it, and there was a crash right in front of him. Oh, boy. I don't know who it was. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be interested in seeing the highlights uh, of the race because it looks like uh, it, it could have been very... Entertaining. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, hey, just one more thing on yeah. the uh, Airbus Boeing. Uh, maybe a plug for Boeing. Mm-hmm. It is the uh, 50th anniversary of the 747. Is it not today? Oh, I, I believe I, it is. I don't know. Have you? I uh, haven't been looking at Rick's tweet, so I'm sure that if it is the fifth, uh, the 75th anniversary, 75th, 50th. or 50th, whatever you said, <laughs> 50th. That makes more sense. Hundredth, I think. One hundred fiftieth. Before they built the 747 before the Wright brothers. That's how old it is. Well, that's how long it took Boeing to get it going. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, happy birthday, Boeing, and happy birthday. Uh, the first jumbo jet, the 747. Yeah, my dad flew it, so I, I, I secretly have a soft spot in my heart for the old girl. I think you have a soft spot in your brain, too. Yeah, that too. <laughs> but I'm allowed to because I'm nearly retired. Okay. We'll give, you, we'll give you that break. All right. With that, uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, listening to the show, downloading it, uh, however you download it, and uh, for giving us great reviews on iTunes. And if you haven't, if you have the time, go over there and do that. And so other people can um, can enjoy this as well. And uh, thanks for everyone supporting the show, both financially and sending us feedback and just, you know, having good thoughts for all of us here on the ABG crew, including our producer, Miss Liz Piper. Thank you very much for all the work that you do. And uh, if you want to learn more about the show and the crew and the community and a lot of other stuff, head over to airlinepilotguy.com and also don't forget we have uh, apps for smartphones iOS and Android free ad free etc a lot of good stuff on those and um, 
let's see, social media. We're on that. We are. You can check out twitter.com and we are using the handle at APG crew. Find all of our individual information pinned to the uh, top of that page. And you can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And there you can interact not only with the crew, but also with members of the community. Um, Lots of people share all kinds of interesting stories and news and information related to all things aviation. So check it out. And do you suspect that you're a slacker? Well, I know I'm a slacker. If you are, then (laughs) listen to this. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at... Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. And uh, we missed you, uh, Dana, Captain Dana, today. And we hope that uh, you enjoyed the National Football League games today. And we hope to uh, have you on with us the next time we do one of these things. And until next time... Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Good day.